Greetings and welcome once again to another episode of the Retro Redoctopus Cephala Podcast. That's, uh, in case you didn't realize it or forgot or something or hit your head, it's the only show that celebrates all the things that made growing up awesome. And uh, as it happens, we are still part of the Dorkening and Inebriart Podcast Networks. And as always, we are brought to you tonight by Deadly Grounds Coffee, coffee to die for. I am your host, Parasite Steve, a.k.a. Steve Van Sampson. And with me, as always, are my hilariously uh, funny adjective cohorts, <laughs> 8-Bit Alchemy. Hey, do you do you read Sutter Kane? I've I've uh, I've I've never I've never read uh, Sutter Kane before. Is he good? Oh, uh, yeah, actually. He, he, uh, will he blow my mind? Uh, he he will. He will actually. He he's the best. And Nintendo. I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. That's true. That intro, I apologize for the intro. Um, so here, uh, <laughs> I liked funny adjectives. <laughs> uh, here today, uh, we are we are here with some very special guests uh, that I am I am extremely excited to introduce. We are all here to talk about the man, the myth, the legend, Mister John Carpenter, and of course. Uh, uh, some of the movies he made, not just the guy. I mean, the movies are kind of the point. Wait, he uh, made movies? He did. He did. He did some stuff. Hmm. He did some stuff. Um, and we'll get there. We'll get there. Let me introduce the other two people who are joining us. We have two guests in the in the virtual yeah. studio with us tonight. The first is the first retro octopus appearance of my lovely wife, Christine, a.k.a. Mrs. Parasite. Hey, Christine. Hey, Steve. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing good. This is uh this is I believe your your podcast debut anywhere. This is true. Oh so. man, this is history right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, welcome to the show oh. finally. Um I had to have you on for this particular episode because you just happen to be one of the biggest John Carpenter fans that I know. I uh I do enjoy the things that he makes very much. Yeah. Yeah, we've we've had a lot of fun with the uh, like these uh, Scream Factory releases have been really, really great um, that they've been putting out of his movies and stuff. And we always, you know, get a couple of those every year and stuff. Pretty fun. Um, So we'll get to talk about some of his fun shit tonight. And uh, here to help us is our second special guest. Rounding out the cast tonight, making his second appearance on the Retro Reductibus Cephalo podcast. Why, who is it but comic book artist Derek Rook from Roughhouse Publishing? How's it going, that's, man? That's half bastard D Rook to you. Half half, <laughs> half a bastard. Uh, just the good half, though. Just the good half. His, his full <laughs> title is the velvet voiced half bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to copyright that as soon as we get off this podcast. He's a half bastard, but he's a whole ass load of fun. Fuck yes. How you doing, guys? So nice to be here. Thank you so much for having me once again. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and culture, John Carpenter style. Hell yeah. And, you know, just like I said with Christine, you know, you are one of the, uh, the, the big aficionados of Carpenter, of my particular friend group. And, uh, you know, when I had the idea to do this episode, I just wanted to jam pack it with as uh, as much fandom as I as I possibly could. We're all fans. Uh, all, all we wanted to bias cool. the fuck out of this episode. Yeah, I mean, we're all Forget about haters. No, we're they all don't about, exist. 
we keep it positive on the uh, retro redacted <laughs> damn, podcast, damn right anyway. so um let me let's just go around the room um if you guys could tell me maybe some just just brief sort of what was like the first movie you remember seeing and really liking that you realized like oh i realize who made this this is a john carpenter movie who's this guy is there a movie that you feel like was the first one that you ever that you ever saw um let's start with let's start with christine um the first one that i realized was escape from new york um i had seen others before that but I didn't, uh, I didn't connect all the dots as a teenager without the interwebs. Hmm. Fair. Escape yeah. from New York, obviously a great it's one. A mm. Great one. Uh, what about you, 8-Bit Alchemy? Uh, so, I mean, I think the first of his movies that like was even appropriate for me to see uh, at a young age was uh, Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> Um, and honestly, I didn't really explore his movies much until like way later in life. But holy cow, <laughs> loved Big Trouble in Little China. And yeah. um, our mom definitely was a huge fan of that movie and of, you know, the the ever handsomeness that is Kurt Russell. Uh, so <laughs> I remember that that definitely doesn't hurt it uh, in, in, in terms of anyone's viewing. But uh, but yeah, uh, Big Trouble in Little China. I mean, I, I, I feel like I told people to watch that movie for so many years and then i started just meeting people who already knew it and loved it and i'm like yes i don't need to convince you nice it's you know it's great yeah nice and uh joe what, what would you say uh, i have to go with uh i would have to go with christine on this one pretty much the same answer like uh escape from new york escape from new york yeah for sure nice <clears throat> yeah i mean that's just such a see see i came i came upon escape from new york much much later um and uh i actually i had seen a bunch of his movies without realizing who made them and i think that my my first uh the first time that i like actually paid attention to who was making it who is john carpenter actually was probably uh i'm ashamed to say this but vampires which was way way later but it was titled john carpenter's vampires so i think that i was like okay i couldn't possibly ignore it and then it was just sort of like, oh, well, who's this John Carpenter guy again? And it was like, oh, he did all these movies I loved. And, um, you know, I, I do think that Big Trouble in Little China was the first one I had seen way back, way, way years before that. I remember seeing an ad for Big Trouble in Little China was going to be on TV and I had never heard of it. And I, I recognized Kurt Russell, but there was no like I didn't there was no give a shit there. Um, it was just like, oh, my God what are all these things there's like wizards and there's an eyeball thing and there's like a freaking like red yeti thing and like what is all this stuff and they crammed all the neat stuff into the the trailer and i was like i have to see this so we we watched it and we uh actually recorded it i i had i remember asking my mom if we could just tape it um We're vhs pirates well you can tape the tv uh, so, so uh, Rook, I think you have a, a much deeper answer here because you've been a fan for, for the long haul. So w- what would you say was your first, the first time you really kind of took notice of who this guy was? Uh, for me, it was uh, when my dad took me and a couple friends to go see the movie Time Bandits. Um, and I remember going into the movie theater and 
you know, there was the, like going to the the theater where Time Bandits was going to be was right next to the theater where they were playing Escape from New York. And right outside of the door was this giant, It uh, in my mind, it plays out as a 10 foot giant um, cardboard cutout of the movie poster in 3D. Um, it probably wasn't that big. I was just really small, uh, but it was fucking amazing looking. And just, again, that movie poster was so striking and, and to see it like in 3d as like this big mock-up right in front of it. I'm like, fuck time bandits. What the fuck is that movie? <laughs> like, I remember when we were sitting in time bandits, waiting for time bandits to start, you could hear the ending of escape. Now what I realized was the ending of escape from New York playing through the walls. So, uh, I was just like, and back then, you know, you had to wait a very, very long time before it went from film to any kind of home media or whatever. Right. Um, so when I finally got a chance to see it, I was just like completely taken by it. And of course, um, I wasn't aware that, that what I was so attracted to when it came to John Carpenter movies wasn't just escape from new york as it was it was the cinematography of of dean cundy the director of photography and the lighting that, that he brought to every single solitary movie that that they did in those early days that run and gun approach um john carpenter's use of panaglide cameras that weren't really used all that much up to that point um and his his style of directing which was more atmospheric and more uh suspense building up um uh, the tension of of a scene, you know, kind of playing it out to its last, you know, until the the last twig on the the back of the camel is about to break, and um, you know, and of course, his soundtracks, his soundtracks were huge. So, like at the time, you didn't realize that one man and his team were responsible for all of this goodness that came with every time you watched a, a one of John Carpenter's pictures. And that went from like, I think the first one that I ever saw was Escape from New York. Then the next movie was Halloween 2, which he didn't direct, but he wrote. Uh, that was the first rated R movie that I ever was allowed to see that was a horror movie. Um, and that's where I learned about Michael Myers. And we'll get into that when we, we start talking about the other things. Yeah. But that whole early phase, John Carpenter, starting with Dark Star, uh, Assault on Precinct 13, Escape from New York, The Fog, The Thing, They Live, Big Trouble prince of darkness and then for me i pieced out until in the mouth of badness and vampires and then i pieced out again and never came back but um so those are my little chunk of movies that uh i just always go back to always are in love with always know what i'm gonna get it's like um it's like buying a typo negative album you know you're gonna get awesome typo negative you're gonna get some awesome music you you know before you you open up the that you crack the seal that everything about it is going to be amazing. There's going to be a lot of green. Be a lot of green. There's going to be a lot of deep blue hues. There's going to be a lot of milk white necks. Oh wait, no, that's just that's just one song. Uh, good, good shit, man. Good shit. Yeah. See, that's why I saved you for last. Um, making us look like chumps here, but thank you. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. That was a great answer. Um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, there is a lot of uh, a lot about John Carpenter movies that I think make them feel like John Carpenter movies. Uh, you alluded to his uh, the music, and really, like, yeah, for those who don't realize, you know, this, so this guy has directed thirty two things, uh, and I say things because most of those are actually shorts. Um, but you know, thirty two things he directed. Uh, he wrote um, um, like 
I think twice that uh, for various things, <clears throat> but he actually did the soundtrack for like 72 different things. Uh, and Man. of course he has, you know, now in, in his, you know, twilight years, his golden years, he's, he's just making music, you know, full time. That's all he does. You know, he has uh, three lost themes albums, which he has been putting out for the last few years, uh, which Christine and I own on vinyl and they are just awesome we love to throw them on actually the new one that just came out lost themes three was uh, kind of our favorite oh it's so good um really really you know fun very simple stuff he you know what derek said about him doing you know everything's atmospheric everything's atmospheric with his music too and he does have you know a, a very small range as far as style with his music but um you know it's it's all fun and it, it just feels like him through and through but he also you know he his movies that uh are basically you know i see i call him like the the king of the cult classic because almost always his movies bomb at the theater and so often those bombs became like these not just like well-regarded films but like classics of the genre movies like the thing movies like escape from new york uh there's a ton of them, obviously Halloween. These, these are like massively loved, important films that are important to a lot of people. That's not a word you get to say about a lot of movies. You know, there's right. a lot of great movies are not really important. They're just cool. But his stuff, I don't know. He, he was doing a lot at the time. He was doing a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of social commentary, a lot of uh, humor, like his humor is, is, almost always there even if it's a serious movie even if it's just a little tiny bit of humor like there's something about the way that he does his dark humor and his his sort of his wry sense of humor uh is always kind of there and um he you know his 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 main thing is horror and sci-fi and some combination of the two and obviously he has some crime movies and he has some just weird ones but um, but you know, he, 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 I know he's said that he prefers sci-fi sci-fi is like his favorite genre ever more than horror. Uh, but you know, a lot of them combine the two. Uh, but anyway, so yeah, this is, this is a talented dude who a lot of people love. Uh, I think it's worth devoting an episode to him. And, uh, so I think without further ado, we could, uh, we could get started in, uh, in, we each have picked out one movie. We're going to be spotlighting for you tonight, and uh, we're going to split split the cast up. Obviously, we can't split it in half. There are five of us, but we do have a surprise uh, sixth entry. We have a voicemail to play a little bit later on. But uh, Derek, I know you're only here for the first half of the episode tonight, so why don't you start us off with your pick? It's uh, definitely a movie that uh, a lot of people would call important. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I want to start off by saying that I'm a little disappointed in myself for not being available for that surprise guest later on, because I feel that it will be inherently awesome. It will. But be. anyway, folks, uh, I'm going to go right into mine. Uh, so mine was uh, John Carpenter's Halloween. And one of the things that I loved about John Carpenter movies, as an aside, was that he always put his name above the title. So it was never when you saw the trailers on TV, it was never Halloween. It was John Carpenter's Halloween. <laughs> John Carpenter's The Fog. 
The Fog is the shittiest name for a movie ever, but you put John Carpenter's The Fog. And all of a sudden, it's something you want to see. Before, it sounds like a fart, you know? But hey, whatever. <laughs> you know, none of, it, none of us picked The Fog. But I, I, I just want to give a little shout out to The Fog. I fucking love The Fog. And The Fog, yeah, dude, we could talk about the shit forever. I mean, The Fog was, was literally made in the editing room um, at the end of it all. Like, it was filmed completely differently, and they, they actually turned it into an amazing little movie. Definitely a, a great, a great movie where they did a lot with a little for sure. As, uh, even, even the locations and stuff, but, but that's not your pick. So what's your no. pick, man? So my pick was JC's Halloween, 1978, the one that started it all. Um, you know, I won't get into the giant backstory of like, you know, is it the first uh, modern American slasher movie proper, or does it go back to Bob Clark's black Christmas and all that? What I did love about Halloween more than anything else was the simplicity of it all. Um, and uh, the narrative, the subtle narrative that it was trying to evoke during the course of its runtime. So like, if you look at the new timeline now that we have for the Halloween series, like the first Halloween movie is Dr. Loomis's movie. You know, he's running around all through the movie telling everybody what Michael is and nobody believes him. Um, and then the second one from 2018, that's Laurie's movie. And I would argue that this new one, Halloween Kills, is Michael's movie. But um, if you want to talk about it from like the, the perspectives of the, the characters that are pushing the narrative forward. But what I loved the most about Halloween was Loomis. And that's something that, you know, obviously now we don't get a chance to, to really enjoy but you could only enjoy it for that one movie and you can only enjoy it one time because you know now that we've had 40 years of these movies of the killers constantly coming back from the dead or constantly you think that they're they're dead and they're not or the movie's over and it's not and there's always that jump scare at the end or whatever this was the beginning of that you know black christmas did it too but not in the same way um you know the the narrative of halloween is that dr loomis a man of of science and medicine worked with a kid so long that he realized that scientifically speaking from a medicine standpoint this is not psychosis this is something else i've i've spent so many years with this kid I know better. There's a, there's a deleted scene. So when Halloween was picked up for uh, television, uh, the runtime was only an hour and a half and they had a two hour time slot. So there's uh, a cut of this movie that has a bunch of added scenes that they filmed while they were filming Halloween 2. One of the greatest scenes is actually just this throwaway scene in the very beginning where you see Dr. Loomis and he's sitting in this big conference room this giant conference room and he's in front of two doctors and the two doctors are saying okay well michael audrey myers has been here for this many years so we're going to transfer him to a minimum security uh facility as of you know whenever and dr loomis is like you can't do that you have to trust me this is this is all a ruse michael is fooling you he's not catatonic at all he knows everything he knows what you're doing he knows what you're saying he knows what you're trying to do he's waiting for that to happen and they're like what are you waiting what is he waiting for and he's like i i i don't know and then after that scene he goes into michael's room and he's literally looking at michael look out the window and he's like you might have fooled everybody else michael but you haven't fooled me and i just love that little that little moment 
Um, yeah. And then, of course, as you go through the movie, he's telling everybody that, you know, the, his whole thing is like this evil, this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the, the whole the whole thing. The twist of the movie, the, the M. Night Shyamalan version of this movie that was at the time was that he was right, that he was right, that at the end of it all, when he looked over that balcony and Michael wasn't there, you didn't see a look of surprise on his face at all. He's like, fucking knew it. <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, and I love that. I mean, it's almost like the reversal of Lucio Fulci zombie, where you had a doctor who not get over the fact that science was not a factor and the reason why zombies were coming back to life and this one loomis is trying to debunk science and tell everybody that this person is evil and they're like eh, you know come on you couldn't have shot him six times it couldn't happen this way it's probably not the way you think it is or whatever and then in, in the end he turns out to be correct and michael is out there somewhere and you never know where he's going to strike again despite shooting him six times Six, six times. times. I love six times. Meme now. Hilarious. I saw the movie six times, and <laughs> it was just all right. But, uh, but no, it was just. Uh, that's what I love the most about that first movie is again the simplicity and the fact that we're talking about something that goes beyond uh, a mortal man, but it's never ever explained. You know, you it almost goes back to like the way you felt about Halloween when you were a kid, where the spirits of Halloween are out there and everything on this night somehow weaves its way into our world and can manifest itself in ways that it can't on any other night. So like, I always thought that Michael only had those powers on Halloween night that every other night of the week, uh, you know, he was just a normal person. He's just on, Mike. He was just Mike, Mikey. <laughs> Mikey. <laughs> on that one Halloween Mikey. night. He likes he killing. When he decided to do his stuff, like, he likes his killing. Look at Mikey; he likes everything. Hey, Mikey, hey, Mikey can you kill any louder? <laughs> on this, on this one night, he had the power of Halloween itself. I mean that that is an interesting idea, you know. I mean, because right. do, does every movie actually? I mean, the new ones, yes, take place on Halloween, right? But the, the all the sequels did they were they all supposed to take place on Halloween? I mean, I know we're yeah. supposed to disregard them, but yeah, they all they all started on Halloween Eve, and then they'd have the Halloween day into the night. So mm -hmm. it would always be a rainy Halloween Eve. Something would like be the the um, the prologue to whatever would happen. Then you'd have the morning into the afternoon, and then the the second act and the third act would take place on Halloween night. So Michael's like, God damn it, I want to keep killing. I just, I got so hyped up last night with all that killing. I want to do more of that. And he's like, I got to wait a year. Fuck. When you look at those movies and you see how long, like during the course of the movie itself, that the carnage takes place. I would argue that Michael is doing more of his killing on November 1st than he is on October 31st. <laughs> right. yeah, that's true, Michael, yeah. you paying sense. attention to the clock? It's 1230 a.m. <laughs> John Carpenter's November. <laughs> John Carpenter's once of the month. <laughs> once of the month. Does uh, anybody else have anything to add to Halloween? I don't. I haven't seen uh, that movie in so long. I don't really um, have an opinion on it. I I think Jamie Lee Curtis is awesome in it. <clears throat> like, I mean, I, I feel like her as a 
you know, strong, smart, successful female protagonist in a horror movie is pretty badass. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, for, for all the, the antics that happen throughout the movie and you're, and I, I feel like that movie so much epitomizes like the, Oh shit, no, don't go in there. But like, um, you know, I, I feel like her character was still written really well, like in mm-hmm. the face of other contemporary female characters in horror movies at that time. Mm-hmm. Christine, do you have anything to add to Halloween? No, I mean, I just, it's, it's such a great ex- example of Carpenter's minimalistic soundtrack where having no music is so much more tense. It's, you know, a lot of horror movies, we were just talking about this the other day, where it's like, okay, I kind of know what's going to happen now because we just heard this big whoosh. Um, <laughs> or and, the bass drops, the bottom drops off. Right. Boom! <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, but he he doesn't do that. He just lets it sit there, and the com- the quietness of it mm-hmm. just really adds adds to the tension. It's uh, it's definitely, in my opinion, one of the better slasher films. Uh, it's not really my like you know stabby films aren't really my thing, but. Um, Halloween is always enjoyable mm. to watch. Yeah, I mean, I think I've I've gotten to respect it more over the years, and uh, I definitely enjoy it more every time I see it. Um, and there it, there definitely is like a lot to be said for the minimalism in the movie, just in the plot, in because uh, because everything that you talked about, Derek, is like so interesting how much you can say about how little is actually in this movie. But like the Loomis stuff is very interesting. And then a lot of the rest of it is just, it's just very, very, I think I just keep saying the word minimal, but I, you know, I don't want to, you know, I'm not, I'm not coming down on it at all, but there's just not a ton there, not a lot going on, but it's like, wow, it, it does fill that runtime. It never gets boring. It's uh, you know, it's only got a few kills, but like it's, it's you know and even though even those kills are not super graphic um, not at all as a matter of fact i don't really know if there's any real blood right shown in the movie i know right. that there's a throat slashing uh somebody gets nailed to a wall right uh, yeah and, and a girl gets strangled and that's pretty much it i mean right. I, I don't think that there's any there's definitely no arterial sprays right uh, not like kills where like the eyes are getting gouged out and the heads are getting ripped off right, and right. getting ripped open. I mean, if Halloween was a classy horror suspense movie, then Halloween kills is like a 1975 exploitation film to the max. Yeah. It's, know? it's, it's more, it's more Texas chainsaw than anything. It's a uh, <laughs> closer like, to Texas chainsaw, like any other Texas chainsaw, except the first one, like all the others, every <laughs> other one. But, um, I, you know, speaking just about the, the soundtrack, too, like, it is interesting because, you know, Christine, you said that there are long stretches of the movie that are just quiet, and that is really so effective. Um, but it's also kind of interesting because I, I would say that this movie has his most uh, recognizable theme, I would say. 
I think it's probably his most mm-hmm. famous piece of music is the, uh, is the Halloween theme. But, um, but they really do not overuse it. Like, cause like, you know, there are some movies that, that play a sound cue every single time. Like just go to the creature from the black lagoon. There's, there's a sting that plays every single time he does anything. And you hear the thing like 162 times in the movie or some nonsense. And, and, you know, it's just like, this is the creature, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay, I see it though. But Michael does not constantly have his theme. It's just every once in a while they peppered in. And so he knows, so Carpenter knows restraint. He knows, he understands that. And I just, I just think it, uh, it helps the theme stay special and stay interesting. And whenever it plays, you're really happy to hear it. Like it really chills you, you know, when it shows up, if it was constant it, or if it was every other scene, it would be like, okay, enough because it's, you know, this it's like three notes, you know, it's just nothing to it, but it just absolutely works. It's super effective. Yeah. In the sequel, Steve, they did use that theme a million times during a 90 minute runtime. They just, it, all of a sudden it became like the James Bond theme. Every time yeah. Michael stepped into frame, you'd hear that three, five, you know exactly yes i've only i've only seen that one once um the second one the original number two i don't yeah paul i I mean i remember original i think in the original movie the theme the the theme that we're all talking about happens for the opening credits it happens in the closing credits and it starts when loomis looks over the edge and sees that michael's not there and And that's i think it might be maybe one more time but i don't even think there because there's Mm -hmm. a michael stocking theme and then there's a laurie's theme and those play back and forth throughout the course of the movie but i think that the the main theme quote unquote was restrained for the opening and closing credits like that Mm -hmm. was the setup and that was the the takeout super effective i mean it's like a master ball it's just it's just super effective that that was that was just for eight that nice was just for poke, nice pokemon so, I, I can't, there, I can't guy. imagine like buying the soundtrack to this movie like what like what could it be it's like okay so you have the halloween theme songs first track and then the second track would be like that bass drop and then the second track would be like silence and then fourth track would be like random screaming well i will you throw, say you just you throw uh, it on if you just want to be like constantly <laughs> shitting your pants at home you're just like i'm right, not sure right. of anything about to happen right well now. i will it's i will sound, say it's a soundtrack that, to fall asleep too that is that is the problem with uh, a different movie we're going to be talking about tonight that is uh there is a soundtrack to one of his movies that is so minimalist it literally is just pretty much one song and we do have it <laughs> oh we'll get there so um i think that does it his for- soundtracks are Go ahead. I was just going to say his soundtracks are really great for like when you when you have company over for the first time and you just put them on for ambiance. Um, <laughs> it's it's perfect for, you know, gauging what's to come with your relationship with these visitors. Agreed. There was a I think in the mid 90s, there was a um, a soundtrack that you could buy of just John Carpenter's main themes from all his movies. Yep. So you could just play the entire 75 or 80 minutes. And it was like all these themes, all the ones we love so much. And yeah, nice. it was a lot, cool. a lot more palpable than if you listen to like, just the, you know, pick a soundtrack by itself again, where there's like three themes playing over and over again, 19 right. different ways. Yeah. Some of, some of them are better than others. Some of them are, are totally listenable, but that's why I like the lost themes album so much. They are yeah. 
they are much easier to listen to john carpenter you know music flavor but as a you know song oriented album right right and uh, And a lot of times he uh i mean i know that um he's he has said that he wrote in all cases he wrote the soundtracks after the movies were already completely done so sometimes he didn't have long to to even work on the soundtrack period um, he would just kind of write it just real quick <laughs> um, and uh, and just somehow it became his style. And, uh, you know, I think I think it's a big part of what makes his movies fun. Um, <clears throat> yeah. So that's Halloween. So thanks, Derek. Nice. nice. Yes. Thank you. Awesome guys. Presentation. Very, very cool. Definitely a classic. Can't uh, can't have your Jason's and your Freddy's and uh, uh, your jigsaws, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Without I was trying to think of a good third one. Angela. Uh, no, um, without <laughs> without Michael Myers, um, right. Angela's having a party, and J- Freddie and Jason are too scared to come. But they didn't mention if Michael was even invited to that party, right? Derek's the only one who knows what I'm talking about right now, right? So I, I don't know an Angela, so I'm I'm very confused. It's, uh, just Night of the Demons. They were they were trying real hard, but it didn't it didn't take the off. The only Angela I know is from Houston. Yeah. Knows it. Different Angela, different Angela. She, <laughs> this one, uh, almost the same. This one was a brunette. Um, all right, so Nintendo, why don't you take yes. it away with uh, with your pick of the of the evening? What what, what okay. movie you got, sir? Well, I got Big Trouble in Little China, also known as John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China. See, I'm not Derek, <laughs> so I can't do it as well. Um, I think this movie is so much fun, um, even you know, to this day. Um, I haven't seen it in a long time. Uh, it stars uh, Kurt Russell as the ever hilarious Jack Burton, who is by far my favorite character. He's just so movie. good. He's just so, so good. So good. Um, the whole point of the movie is uh, Jack Burton gets involved in some kind of like ancient ritual thingy or whatever. And uh, he has to save the girl with the green eyes, but there's two of them. And, uh, I don't know, it's just a lot of fun. It's like the, the, the movie's uh, action-packed. Uh, you would think it would be a serious movie, but it's really not because Kurt Russell is fucking hilarious in this movie. Um, uh, what else can I say about this movie? Um, it's not very long. Um, the soundtrack is kind of quirky, I guess. Maybe. I gotta um, say, I don't really remember the soundtrack asserting itself in this movie like so yeah it's really it's really weird we just remember remember it's very 80s 80s. yeah um it also stars uh kim catrally or control kim Cattrall as a control yeah as gracie law uh law who is a lawyer and also jack's love interest and then you have Mm. dennis dunn as wang chi jack's best friend and restaurant owner Mm -hmm. um and then you have james Hung as David Lopin, which I believe Steve and I have met. Yeah, we we met him in the '90s at a convention. Uh, a mil- yeah, it was like '97 or something. We met. Yeah, it was I a have- Star Trek convention, right? Yeah, well, it was Star Trek. Was a sci- a sci-fi. We always called like them. Yeah, mm-hmm. we always called them Star Trek conventions because at the beginning, like that's that was the only thing. And you and I went to a few Star Trek quote unquote conventions. This one had other stuff there were star trek people there like i remember denise crosby was there and she was actually filming her her documentary trekkies there and we we got filmed for it but we weren't in the movie uh, we were too right. boring 
which is fair because we are we're super boring <laughs> yeah. lame uh, we're lame yeah it, we're there was lame. also a bunch of star wars people there it was like the tour uh the people behind the masks so it was like uh like jeremy bullock who played Bubba Fett and it was David Prowse who is Vader and uh, Peter Mayhew is Chewbacca and Kenny Baker who is R2-D2 so basically all the really famous Star Wars people oh Warwick Davis was there um, that you want to meet that wear masks all the time except for Anthony Daniels who is C-3PO he was the like the, the glaring omission but um, it was really fun that we got to meet all those guys a lot of them are have passed on now so you know it's yeah. pretty cool we, we got to meet all those guys um actually yeah, i think you, all you, of you, those guys are are gone you actually have his autograph from james, this movie yeah james hung i i got um a low pan autograph and he says said steve get the girl with the green eyes and then my mom also because this was when we were like you know much much younger i mean we we're in high school anyway but she brought us and uh she also got his autograph and it said to nancy you'll do you have green eyes <laughs> one of the best autographs or, or like good. little <clears throat> super good i mean crazy coincidence i have right. green eyes i i literally got the girl with the green eyes you did maybe you did. we only ever got together because of james hong maybe mm-hmm. it was all because of me you know it's, <laughs> it's funny because, because of my autograph you know thinking on it because i i think of this movie as like an action comedy but is is Kurt Russell the only outright funny character? Yes. Yes. Well, I, I, think, I think that's I think, something I think that other people, makes... I think, go ahead. No, 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 go. Uh, I, was, I was just going to say, I think other people were, uh, weren't supposed to be funny, but they're like unintentionally funny, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were, they were funny. I think just it's by... really great that, Okay, Christine. Go. <laughs> I think it's really great that um, that Kurt Russell's character is, you know, he he's he's the main character. He's this like handsome white guy, um, and he's kind of a bumbling fool. Yeah. Of it. Yeah. I mean, Wei yes. Chi is like so much better at fighting and and just just everything. Yeah. Everything. Um, yeah. And then there's. There's, you know, there's Kurt, like, <laughs> he's got a beer. <laughs> and he thinks he's so awesome. He's, yeah, he's so awesome. convinced of his own. It's all in the reflexes. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> it's your buddy, Jack Burton. And if you're driving out there on a rainy night and the rain's coming down and sheets and, and blah, blah, blah. Just like, he's just like, he just thinks he has so much to say. And right. he has nothing to say. And in he fact, and in fact, he does like absolutely nothing in this movie, but except being hilarious and he has ass kicked. <laughs> yeah, with the exception of him throwing that knife in a little that knife. Head. That was his oh, only badass moment in the whole movie. <laughs> Otherwise, he's just the Uber driver. He's successful by association. <laughs> Drive the old pork chop express. What makes oh, him funny <laughs> is that nobody told him that he's not the star of this picture. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> like, right. And uh, and how many people do we know in real life who are just full of hot air and just to yeah. their own horn and, you know, shit at these fucking conventions we do? How many of these blowhards do we see in the course of one hour, let alone one weekend? Right. Yeah, I'm working on my own comic book. Got a couple people uh, you might have heard of, like... Uh, uh, Michael Seidewitz and uh, still waiting for him to call me back, but he's on the way. 
<laughs> Pretty good Jack Burton there. Yeah, One of my yeah. favorite scenes is uh, Wang Chi fighting up all the elemental uh, uh, samurais or whatever they're supposed to be. Uh, yeah, yeah. Who, who the, are the, 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 the Yeah, the storms. Yes, yeah. yes. The three storms. Yeah. The Raidens. Yeah. The three Raidens. Three Raidens. Yeah. <laughs> that was the first thing. The characters that absolutely every single person I know who played Mortal Kombat for the first time said, "Why is this guy from Big Trouble in Little China in this game?" <laughs> oh yeah everyone it's, said that everyone said that <clears throat> right. i mean for real <laughs> for i mean for real for real everybody like everybody i know said that it was only one person but it was everybody it was everyone <laughs> hey yeah. i used to frequent arcades back in that day hey man i knew it's people. true <laughs> i know some people uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like, uh, you know, as far as the, the, the music in this movie, maybe it wasn't super memorable. I mean, I always remember the big trouble. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the yeah. Uh, in little China. And, yeah, the end credit song. <laughs> like, that by song the, uh, is so good. The, by the Coupe de Villes. Oh. <laughs> the Coupe de Villes. Big trouble. It's just so funny. Like, so I don't, I don't actually know, but I feel like Derek will. Do you know who did the effects for this movie? Was this a Nicotero joint or, or uh, for Big Trouble? Um, no, I don't actually. Um, it wasn't Nicotero. I know that for it could have been. I don't even think there was a KMB yet. To be honest with you guys, uh, Big Trouble came out in uh, 86. 86. Yeah. 86. So KMB would have been not all of the members yet. Um, <clears throat> I don't think KMB was around officially until 87. So I'm okay. not sure. I'm not sure. It could have been. The, the effects it, were great. If I had to guess, I'd say just based on the monsters, I'd say I'm going to either say he probably couldn't afford Stan Winston. I mean, it looks John, like Stan. It my does. guess was Stan Winston, actually. John yeah. Car- I'm going to guess John Carl Buchler. And then while we're talking, I'm going to look it up and see if we were right or not. But uh, that's my guess. John because Carl I mean, uh, you know, there's yeah. some seriously great practical effects in this. I mean, there's the uh, yeah. the the big red Sasquatch guy who uh, is is actually the uh, the wild man of Borneo is actually what that is, which is okay. uh, one of the global Sasquatch type creatures, a folklore creature, the wild man of Borneo, and he is supposed to be red. Um, so he, and and then there's like the eyeball thing that I guess is a beholder. Like from Dungeons and Dragons, like it's so fucking bizarre. There's so many weird things that Carpenter yeah. crammed into this movie, and it really in the pantheon of his movies in the lineup. It's like it is the action fantasy. It is the only one like it. Like it's action fantasy comedy, not really horror, but there are horrific monsters. But even then, they're kind of just goofy, like the Wild Man. But <clears throat> before you really see the Wild Man's face, they make you think that he's a lot going to be a lot scarier than he is and you see his you see his like his hand and his you know the suit's awesome but when you see his face it's like oh he's he's goofy right you know but yeah you know i mean it's still still neat but some some really great sets in this movie too that big huge like electric skull set like it's like mumra's tomb or something right like yeah it's like neon (laughs) neon mumra uh, set and <laughs> so fucking awesome, and I mean just the aging makeup for for James Hong and um, mm-hmm. and the early scenes is just fantastic. I mean he really yeah. truly looks like just this decrepit old mummy. 
Uh, he's so old. And uh, and then, of course, the memorable scene I, when when one of the storms makes himself explode. Uh, yes, yeah. was always <laughs> a scene I remember people talking about from this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, I in fact I remember people saying, "Oh, that movie where the guy explodes!" Like there's, like he blows up. I remember it being in the trailer that made me want to see the movie. It's like, what is this movie? I have right. to see it. Right, have to see it. Yeah. Uh, one of the scenes from the commercial that made me want to see it was uh, low pan, like right in the, the beginning of the movie where he sticks his hands out and then his eyes start glowing and start like shooting out the, the lights and then the light comes out of his mouth to and uh, he blinds uh, Kurt Russell uh, or Jack Burton rather. I thought that was really cool. I don't know why. Yeah, really. That effect like blew me away at the time. Yeah. Yeah, there's it, tons of fun gags throughout the whole movie. For sure. It's yeah, just, it's just sure. a ton of fun. Yeah, it, it seems like he Carpenter must have had just such a blast making this movie. And and also, you know, it has to be mentioned at least that, you know, Kurt Russell, you know, he's been in numerous Carpenter movies, at least four off the top of my head, right? The Two Escapes, The Thing, and then this. Is there another one I'm missing? I think he was in the TV movie Elvis. Oh, okay. Um. Yeah, I've never seen that, but no, so, I, I haven't either. So clearly, you know, they work together a decent amount. He's like the uh, the Johnny Depp to Carpenter's Tim Burton, and uh, he uh, he's so incredibly goddamn different in every one of the movies. It's just insane. Like Snake yeah. is such a legitimate badass, and right. Jack Burton is such the opposite. He thinks That's he's a, a badass, <laughs> and he's just he's a just complete not. loser. <laughs> Yep. And then McCready is just a hundred percent different too. He's not, I mean, he is a badass, but in a different way. He's not overtly a badass. He's just, you know, some guy who can, you know, shut up and put up, you know, and yeah, make, make right, decisions right. and do shit for yeah. once. Right. right. Apparently there was a, oh, go, go ahead, Christine. I think it's worth mentioning. I had read this years ago when I was looking up um, something else that, uh, Kurt Russell turned down the lead role in Highlander to be in Big Trouble in Little China. Oh, thank God he did. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, I agree. I agree. Thank God he did. But but that's significant. Yeah. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, for sure. It's just one of those things where, like, clearly him and John Carpenter had you know, they had this relationship where yeah. he was like, no, I'm gonna put my trust into you in this really freaking weird movie and uh, <laughs> right, they know right. they're cutting people's heads off <laughs> yeah right he did not want to be the one <laughs> apparently there's <laughs> a apparently there was a, a tie-in video game by uh, electric dream software for the uh, zx spectrum commodore 64 really i never knew yeah. that yeah me either. I'm, I'm, I'm actually i literally just found that out um i'm looking it up right now and it's hard to tell if like if these images are like legit or if they're like photoshopped or if they're like hacks or something uh but yeah i mean i would definitely like to you know you know explore that and do some research on it and maybe play it or something if it's available for like emulation yeah 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 check it out for sure cool cool yeah so yeah that was Big Trouble in China. Oh, yeah. So I'm I'm reading the uh, the effects team actually did have Screaming Mad George on it, and Steve Johnson was also there. I don't know who that is. 
You probably do, uh, Derek. Uh, yeah, well, I definitely know who Screaming Matt George is, and now yeah. that I say it, um, some of those special effects do ring true, like that uh, creature with all the eyeballs. And hmm. um, I did I, the monster at the end, the the, the Yeti looking monster yep. doesn't seem like a Screaming Mad George one, but who know, what do I know? Uh, I mean, I mean, it might not be. It just said he was on the team. Yeah, uh, and there was also that big, huge puppet that was like uh, it's basically the the creature from the other dimension that's like breaking through. It kind of looks part bug, part fish. Right. There, there's some seriously badass makeup and creature designs in this. I mean, really, really, just a, a wealth of them. What's interesting about what you just said, Steve, is that a lot of these guys they worked as you know team members on other for other studios back in the day, and then soon after 86 87 they started becoming their own people so you know like nicotero started kmb with his his counterparts and uh soon after this i think 87 screaming mad george became screaming mad george somewhere around the same time with that special effects practical effects boom of the mid to late 80s so we were watching all these guys become who they would ultimately become mm. um, you know having their first start working for you know it's almost like uh, working for another company and then starting your own and doing the same thing, you know, and, and mm -hmm. kind of being a, a link in your own chain. So uh, just really, really good stuff. Last, last uh, word on the subject I will say is apparently just to put it to bed, it was uh, the wild man was not screaming mad George. It says um, it was sculpted by Steve Johnson. Um and it was done by a, well, actually, it's interesting. Bloody Disgusting is talking about this. It says, uh, Chinese, the Chinese Wild Man is the, apparently the official name. So I was right about Wild Man, but it is based on the Wild Man of Borneo for sure. It's uh, sort of equivalent to the Sasquatch and a carpenter. And Carpenter envisioned the creature to look like a cross between a wolf and Nosferatu. But visual effects oh. art director George Jensen went through at least a dozen designs uh, and drawings trying to trying to get the right look and eventually they came to a, a drawing that carpenter like and and then steve johnson did the sculpture so pretty cool so clearly there was a, a decent amount of talent on this team it wasn't like it was done by a stan winston or you know one guy that was a famous name but good yeah. shit yeah. yeah, if you look up Steve Johnson's uh, pedigree, he's got a filmography a mile long. He's done everything. Yeah, everything. Even if somebody else was the main special effects artist, he was somewhere on that team. He's done everything from just like looking at the, he did Videodrome, Ghostbusters, Greystoke, uh, Fright Night, Halloween. Uh, I'm sorry, Howling Two, Howling Three and Four, Poltergeist Two. The list goes on and on and on. Nice. Obviously, everybody in Hollywood works on the, these movies all together, but this guy's been around. The last one he did was uh, Fear Clinic in 2014, which I know. Nice. Yeah. Good shit. Big Trouble in Little China. Definitely uh, one of my most beloved Carpenter movies. Uh, always will be. I, I love the, the horror comedies anyway. But um, yeah, so uh, moving on, uh, Christine, would you like to give us your movie? So my movie choice is They Live. Um, they Live is, it's one of the few movies that I will happily watch any day. Um, 
and it's it's no oh, it's, it's interesting it just holds a really special place for me uh it's one of the first movies so so growing up my my dad is um i mean he he just loves movies just all he his entire life that's that is his fun watching movies and he will happily watch pretty much any movie a hundred times and still find it as entertaining as he did the very first time that he watched it. Uh, they live is probably the first movie that I would also watch over again and not complain about not outward. I would never outwardly complain, but um, and it was in the early 90s after watching because they live it ended up being one of those movies that was like just on on a Sunday afternoon felt right. like every Sunday right um, <laughs> and it was watching they live when um, my dad was like oh yeah well and he connected it for me with John Carpenter to um, to the thing and uh, escape from New York. And um, I don't know. I, I, it's really just one of the very few movies that um, we just really liked in common. And I think that part of that was that it, it encompasses a few different genres. You know, part of it is kind of this like it's got a western feel where there's just this one man with his one backpack just right. strolling into town on the railroad tracks and he's completely mysterious we know nothing about him um and we never learn any more either and that just seems fine and um, I guess kind of like, uh, you know, some some of the Clint Eastwood movies that I've seen as a kid. He's he just walks in with only what he owns on his back, and he's a he's a good guy, but he will also fight when necessary. He will make you put on uh, those goddamn glasses. Let me tell you. He will make you put on those goddamn glasses. If that means 15 minutes worth of fighting, that is what he will do. It's just what, what it needs. It's exactly how many minutes it needed. <laughs> and, and I mean, there was the, the built-in fun. So as a kid, I watched a lot of, um, a lot of wrestling. And who didn't know who Roddy Piper was? Uh, so there was that, but, and, and just the really, that, that John Carpenter, um, humor where it can be very subtle, um, but still just absolutely hilarious. So much later in life learning that, you know, some of the big, um, the major funny moments were actually written by Roddy. He, um, he kept a notebook in his back pocket at all times so that when he thought of something funny that he could incorporate into his, his wrestling persona, 
he would have it there so he could pitch it. Um, and that's where the bubblegum line comes from. That was a hundred percent. That was a hundred percent Roddy, but also pulling in the um, not trusting authority to not trusting the people in charge, the, the rich people all around us. I mean, as a teenager, that really, really just resonated with me. Like, yeah, yeah, you, you should never trust authority. Um, we don't need no education. <laughs> I mean, we do. We definitely need education. Oh, oh right, right, right. We do. No, you're right. We do. <laughs> definitely. But, uh, um, but just, just that, that small, you know, I mean, I was very much a rule follower, um, but to just have that, what's really going on? What could potentially be really going on behind the scenes? Um, it just, it's, it's just one of those movies that so often uh, up until like the mid nineties, like basically my entire, um, you know, high school career at any point on a weekend, you could turn on the TV and they live would be on. And regardless of where it was in the movie, I'm good. I'm just gonna stop here and just watch. Just gonna it. keep watching. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I gotta just pick it up right here. Just, yep, just picking up here. That is totally fine. And I just, it's just, it's such a, um, it's it's just it's it has so much heart, you know. Even after that big fight scene, where they are just, you know, throwing each other on the ground, and then at the end of it all, they're like, all right, okay, yep, let's go. Yeah, we right. trust each other. Right. Pat it out. <laughs> oh, there are aliens. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, from all the high face. All right. Sure. Right. Okay. No, nobody has to talk about it and be the better man or, or anything like that. Just, okay, fair enough. Let's go. Yep. Bullshit um, over. Let's go. Let's get down to business. <laughs> right. And, and then to later in life learn like the really sweet things about it. Um, you know, Carpenter paid and fed actual homeless people that were in this movie. Um, and it's for him, it's a commentary on Reaganomics and yuppies. Um, so it just, unlike many movies that I loved when I was young, and then I rewatched as an adult and went, oh, ew. Um, this doesn't do that. It still just stands strong as, as a little movie with a lot of heart. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I think it, it sort of reminds me of a little bit um, is, is Bubba Hotep. And mm. I will always defend Bubba Hotep because even if you think it's, ridiculous and stupid and it's you know this this ridiculous story about elvis and uh a mummy that sucks souls out of people's assholes which of course it is it is that but it is also a like really super biting very honest commentary uh about how shitty we treat old people in this country yeah. and so whenever i see baba hotep i love that layer so much it's so 
effective. And it's, it's a thing that so few movies or TV shows or anything even deal with. And this sort of did that same thing, but with the homeless, I mean, I've never seen the homeless depicted uh, ever like, Oh, there. So you're telling me there are day workers they go and then they go home to this like shanty town and they just live outside, but it's all together and they get fed by, you know, you know, but they're this, this, you know, soup kitchen or whatever, but, but they, then they go to work the next day and they have jobs. They just, they just can't use it. Like, you know, Keith David's character, right. his name, Frank, he's sending all his, all his money home to well, what he says is his wife and kids. And, you know, if you believe him, um, so, you know, if that's true, then like he's keeping none of it for himself, none of it. He's not, mm. he, he's living for free. So, you it, know, it's just very interesting that, you know, it's, it's one of those things that it's, it feels like a very true, honest depiction of, uh, a stigma that a lot of, a lot of, well, I wish to say so few movies want to shed the spotlight on, um, even though it's a silly thing about, you know, aliens and trickle down Reaganomics. <laughs> there are two scenes in this movie that even though I've seen it dozens of times still just make me recoil. One of them is when they come into the uh, the homeless uh, camp that they have and they just start bulldozing everything. Mm. And it, it just hurts to see every time why and i don't i know that this happens you know that just get these people out of here how long did it take to acquire what what they had there and they just come in and bulldoze it over without a care in the world Um, um the other one is is frank's death just i gasp every time it's like no matter what, it's so unexpected and small and over with so quickly that it's just, it's a shock every time, even though I actually know it's coming. Right. Um, yep. Yeah, it hurts. It hurts because you really like Frank a lot. And they spent so much time getting it, you know, basically with these two characters, because like, the cast is so tiny. You know, and, yeah. and, you know, Meg Foster is in the movie, but she's not in probably 60% of the movie. She's not in it that much. She, she doesn't show up until it's more than halfway over, I think. And then even then she's not in it for, you know, right. the rest but of the what scenes. What does she have? Maybe 10 total minutes of Right. Time? She's like, yeah, it's like Beetlejuice. It's like, you know, oh, no, Beetlejuice is barely in this movie. Is, is he really? Like, I didn't count <laughs> the minutes up, but okay. But yeah, like Meg Foster's not in it too much. So really, it's it's mainly just just them. And uh, it's not as if there's a villain. The villain is just the aliens. It's just a the government, the it's society, society, yeah. The, yeah. The, the shadow, shadow society. The, you know, it, it's not one person. There's no singular villain. So it's just kind of interesting. But, um, you know, definitely a movie with uh, not a ton of dialogue either. And this is this is the one where I was alluding to earlier, where I said the the soundtrack was basically one song. It really is pretty much just do 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 do. Right, just this really great bass yeah. line. Yeah, do 
do, 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 do. It's do. pretty much the entire record is just versions of that. It's really funny, but apparently he had almost no time to write the soundtrack. It was just mm-hmm. like deliver it mm-hmm. tomorrow. Oh, okay, right. Uh, so him and one of the guys. It's so it per- perfect and it so is. effective. Like it, it would the movie would be silly if it had a grand soundtrack. Uh, think it would work at all right like if, yeah. if it had this big orchestra behind it and all all of this massive music right, leading right. up to this amazing fight scene um you'd be so disappointed yeah. <laughs> right it would just but, be like, but you're not because it's it's small yeah, yeah. needs to be down and dirty and, and simple is, and... right and as little as meg foster was in this movie she really she did a great job yeah um instilling the fact that she is an evil evil woman for me for my entire life i still look at her and think oh no no get out of my face you killed frank (laughs) you killed frank you son of a bitch (laughs) you son of a bitch (laughs) you piece of shit I've seen her here and there on things, and I look at her and I go, "Ew, (laughs) go Frank." (laughs) Um, She, she, I mean, she dies in like (laughs) she's in one scene of Blind Fury and gets killed. One scene, right, right at the beginning. She deserves it, you know. Now, now that I'm much more of an adult, I feel like I need to apologize to her. For really despising I w- her, I would for love to meet like twenty five years. Yeah, I would love to meet Meg Foster and have you tell her that story. I'm sure she would really appreciate <laughs> it. I'm sure she would. That's like such a compliment, right? That means she did a good job. Yeah, yeah, she did it. I hated you my whole life. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you just slap her across I just the want face. You first. to know that I. Can't stand your face. I hate your stinking guts. You, you make me vomit. Oh, poor man. Between my toes. There are like a a couple of fun moments in the movie that you know I definitely didn't notice until also later in life, where um, it just shows you that that John Carpenter really doesn't take himself seriously. Um. He's doing this for his passion and for his fun. And um, and I just, I, I love that. I think that's so charming. And one it's- of them that I remember off the top of my head is, is when they're, um, I don't know if they're walking by a TV or if they're like sitting in a, if he's sitting in a bar maybe, but on TV, uh, the newscaster is saying how, um, you know, things are getting really bad and violence and it's really bad. And, you know, these movie makers like George Romero and John Carpenter really need to dial back <laughs> right. the violence because that's clearly <laughs> the problem we have. Um, Love it. And it's right. Like, that's so, so, so good. So good. Right. And of so course, good. you have the hilarious final shot of the movie. Hey, baby, what's the matter? right so good um so i know we're running a little bit uh late on this and i know derek has to get out of here so um i think we'll just we'll just move on to the octoponder um before 
before you get out of here, D Rook, uh, you want to do a little promo for Roughhouse Publishing? <clears throat> me, me, me. <clears throat> you, you, you. Roughhouse Publishing. We are the home of the not so funny books, music, and pulp media. We make limited edition comic books, novels, very graphic novels, soundtracks, rock music, art prints, and more. Roughhouse Publishing is not your daddy's comic book collection, and we are definitely not approved by the Comic Book Code of Authority. We make reading fun and mental. Roughhousepublishing.com. There you go. There you go. Nice. nice. That was good. That was good. So, nice. so uh, you know, uh, it's not as if our listeners haven't heard me say these titles a million times already, but you can purchase, you know, the hardcover limited edition of Mark of the Witchworm, the first novel by Roughhouse Publishing. That was, you know, it just so happens I wrote the thing, but, you know, you can go to roughhousepublishing.com and get that. And uh, there's uh, plenty of gore shriek issues left, but not one of them because we officially just sold out forever of, uh, you want to take this one, Derek? Sure. The uh, original Bruce Spaulding Fuller cover that was done for the 30th anniversary issue of Gorshriek Resurrectus uh, is now defunct, gone forever. It is. Uh, it enjoyed its 500 book run and uh, will never be reprinted again in that format. So uh, we we bid it a fond adieu. Uh, Bruce Spaulding Fuller has since retired from comics and gone back to making tons of money as a special effects designer in Hollywood. Um, and then we have uh, uh, the next up to for extinction is Gorshriek Resurrectus Volume Two Cover A. So if anybody out there was still on the fence, I think you've got about twenty issues to think about it, and then that also is going to be by the way of the dinosaurs. Yeah, that bird brain. Nice. The bird brain. Yes, uh, that's, uh, that's that's my favorite that's cover. That's the one I got. That issue. Yeah, that was the one. So we got both of those <laughs> covers. Believe it or not, a little trivia at the same time. And uh, so we got the Bruce Spaulding Fuller for uh, cover A for the first issue. And then we got the Bird Brain for the second issue at the same time. And I was just like, I don't know. I mean, Gurch is awesome, but he just makes me want to go make fries for somebody else somewhere instead of being an artist myself. <laughs> Fuck you, Gurch. Why are you so good? Right. <laughs> I think he should aim fire than higher than fries. All right, yeah, we'll do burgers. Make, make also. pies. Make pies. <laughs> I was gonna say like tater like tots. A Cajun tot. A, I think you're at least as good as a Cajun tot, Derek. I mean, come on. If you guys take the family on Sundays to Sandy's and I'm the one serving you uh, Cajun fries, then you know what happened. <laughs> the Gurch finally <laughs> got to you. I, he finally, yeah, he finally just weeded me out for good. <laughs> He turned me into that blowhard at the convention where I was like, yeah, I got a comic book company too. It's called Roughhouse Publishing. You might have heard of it. <laughs> I work with me, I'll be over here cleaning the toilets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your old buddy Derek Rook over Roughhouse Publishing. Yeah, good stuff. All right. All right, man. All... Uh, I don't want to keep you too long, but I do want to I do want to ask this week's question, and I'd like if you don't mind. If you could just answer it before you go. Usually we do the answers after the break, but just, 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 I, I, I kind of, I'm greedy. I'm greedy this week. So give me like two more minutes. Yes. 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 Okay. <laughs> yeah. So uh, this week's Octoponder This, which we posted already in the group, if you guys happen to be frequenters of said Facebook group, uh, we asked you, the Retroids, to, in the spirit of John Carpenter, 
this is kind of like the uh, sort of an inverting the famous Muppet question of, you know, where you take one and we asked this in our Muppet episode where you take one character in a movie to remain and the rest of the cast becomes Muppets. So in this this version of the question, we I want you to pick a movie and pick a character in that movie to become Snake Plissken. OK, and okay. scene. <laughs> that, that, that's basically yeah. it so it can be any movie and then you got to tell me what the character is you want to replace and it becomes snake and all the snake you know he will drive the plot he's not a leaf on the breeze the movie will be a new movie completely different because he's snake fucking plissken so it can be anybody you want so knowing that what's your answer d rook so my answer to that uh, that very, very well thought out question is, in fact, uh, the main character or the main bad guy, I should say, technically the bad guy of the original assault on Precinct 13. And his name was Napoleon Wilson. Um, Napoleon Wilson was uh, in the prison bus that was on its way to take a bunch of prisoners to uh, death row. And they had to make a pit stop because one of the prisoners got sick and they had to make a pit stop at a defunct prison uh, or precinct, excuse me. <clears throat> and that's where all the carnage ensues for all of you guys out there that saw it. So I would change Napoleon Wilson out uh, that was played by Darwin Johnson to Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. And that would effectively make Assault on Precinct 13 the part one to escape from New York being part two because escape from New York starts with the prison bus landing in New York parking in New York and depositing snake Plissken to be deported to New York, which is a death sentence. <laughs> so uh, definitely would have been that. And uh, you know, I always felt that uh, John Carpenter kind of had a snake Plissken character almost in all of his movies. Anyways, um, if you look at, uh, Steve, I actually sent you a movie poster for you to take a look at, but not the famous Escape from New York movie poster, but there was one done by the same artist before that. It was kind of like a teaser poster before they had um, cast Kurt Russell. And the Snake Plissken character is Darwin Johnson and uh, the guy who played Napoleon Wilson in Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, I just shared it with, uh, with everybody, too. Christine. Yeah. So instead of having a snake on his stomach, he has it on his arm. But it's the the character in the movie poster is the face of Darwin Johnson. Hmm. So as a reversal on that, I'd say that instead of Darwin Johnson, have it be Kurt Russell and have Escape from New York be part two. And of course, if we wanted to really go on, if you would indulge me for a second, I could say that yeah. and, uh, you know, not to take away from Christine's favorite character and they live, which is obviously Roddy Piper. But again, that like Similar. Christine, you said, you said it best that, you know, John Carpenter was making these Western type characters, these men with no name that kind of come in with whatever they have on them and they have an adventure and then they move on. Um, so if you wanted to make they live technically part three, you could have that character be Snake Plissken after the events of Escape from New York, um, living on the DL, uh, and he uncovers this whole thing with the aliens and all the people that, and, and you know, if there was ever a character that is would stand for somebody like the homeless, it would be somebody like Snake because he's always been an underdog character himself. And then, of course, uh, you could switch out Desolation Williams and Ghost of Mars and you could turn that into Snake Plissken and have him fly off 
uh, to Mars and have the shitty Ghost of Mars be the final installment, which would be the effective part four. Hopefully Mars would blow up with everybody the fuck on it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he would be better than Ice Cube, but that movie would still be a piece of shit. So, Steve, you're the one who said it to me, and uh, and Christine, you probably know this too, and maybe everybody else on the panel, but uh, a version of Ghosts of Mars started off as the the third chapter, which was supposed to be Escape from Earth, which was supposed to be a Snake Plissken movie. So Desolation Williams is, you know, I mean, it was changed up so that we could make, oh, they could make the movie that they made. But, I mean, even down to the um, the fatigues, you know, Snake had Siberian uh, fatigues, the white and the gray and the black. And Desolation Williams has black and red because he's it's the fatigues you wear on Mars, apparently. Mm. Um, but uh, the same type of character, the same type of idea that that happens almost as a through line in most of his movies. Mm. But uh, but yeah, definitely. Uh, if there was only one, it would be uh, Darwin Johnson's character, Napoleon Wilson from uh, Salt on Precinct 13. Uh, I can see you haven't given this any thought. Not at all. No, <laughs> off, the, off the fly. So this was off the cuff for some I thought about. Totally it. off the cuff. I didn't base this whole entire thing on the fact that you've uh, told me that story a thousand times or anything. Not nothing like that. I just nothing uh, at all like that. This totally random uh, happenstance. All sorts of good stuff uh, that happens on the Retro Doctor podcast because we are nothing if not spontaneous. That's what I've always said. <laughs> That's what I've always said. Damn right. So thank you for the answer. Thank you for coming on the show, man. Uh, hopefully one of these days we'll have you have you back for an episode where you where you can stay to the end. Uh, but until then, we appreciate you coming on. Guys, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure, especially for this episode, to talk about uh, somebody that, uh, is, you know, as far as a, a movie maker, uh, has been such a staple of my childhood. And uh, all of ours uh, together, it just, this is the kind of shit that brings everybody together under one roof to talk about all the fun stuff in life. Um, not the bills, not the IRS, not the jobs, but all the pop culture stuff that made us, right? Absolutely. Right. That's, yeah. That's, thanks so much, man. That's why humans Absolutely, need stories, guys. man. Love you guys. We'll see you soon. Stuff. All right, man. Take it easy. Take it easy. Bye-bye. He, he just escaped from this podcast. He did. He escaped from podcast. <laughs> podcast. He, he did. He did. He said, uh, screw you guys. I'm going ham. He's going ham. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's let's keep it going, because obviously we are getting a little bit long, but we're having fun. I think it's going great. Hope you guys are enjoying the episode so far. Let me just restate the octopond to this before we go to break. And it was uh, just, hey, you know, pick a movie and a character in that movie that will be replaced by Snake Plissken. Uh, I, I don't expect your answers to be anywhere near as good as Derek Brooks. I know mine isn't, but mine's hey, definitely not. No, mine's not either. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, why don't you think about it anyway for just a little bit while we go on a short break? Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, 
It's scary. Oh, hey there, Count Panic. I got a question for you. What's that, Bob? What do you know about Mothman, the Loch Ness Monster, ghosts, demons, and things that go bump in the night? Not much, Bob. Well, lucky for you, we host a podcast called Bob After Dark, where we talk about legends, lore, and the supernatural. Wow, where can I find this podcast? Wherever you find your great podcasts at. Hello, this is Terrell Whitlatch. I am the lead creature designer for The Phantom Menace, among other things. And you are listening to Retro Redoctopus. Hey, are you ready to do some bacon? It's about that time where we ask you, the audience, to octo-ponder this. Welcome back aboard, everyone. All right, so we've asked you this week's octo-ponder this question, which was pick a movie, pick a character in said movie, and replace that character with Snake Plissken because he's a total badass and a lot of fun, and uh, I love him. And he's he's Carpenter. He's a Carpenter mainstay. So hey, whatever. Um, and you know the guy, the guy John Carpenter being the guy, the guy, uh, not a fan of sequels. The only sequel I believe he did was Escape from L.A., um, which you know most fans of Escape from New York want to pretend doesn't exist. Derek Rook included um but hey uh you know not a big fan of sequels but hey you know he is a character that could just be fit just could fit in so many situations so before i get to the retroid answers that we got we got some fun ones today on the in the group in the facebook group let me let's let's run down our list here um so nintendo what you got man well i got uh teenage mutant ninja turtles replace casey jones with snake plissken oh that's damn good that's damn good. Be really fun. That's damn good. <laughs> I quite like that. Yes. Nice. Good. Good times. Eight uh, bit. Uh, I want to see Snake Plissken uh, in uh, Kindergarten Cop. I want, <laughs> I want instead of Richard Kimball. <laughs> yes, instead of Detective John Kimball, uh, it is. <laughs> it is going to be. Is going to be Snake Plissken. Nice. Uh, and I feel like he. Would just be like, all right, that's enough of that. Stop screwing around. We gotta no, get Jack you guys Burton. all sit. No, I know, Jack- but uh, damn it, I know, but that's what I want. I want Jack Burton to be. No, the question is like, like, you kids, <laughs> you kids better sit down. I don't want to hear about your mom's <laughs> vagina, Billy. Okay. I don't care that your dad's a gynecologist. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, that, that that's my go. That's my. Who is your daddy, and what does he do? <laughs> what does he do? Who is your daddy and what does he do? Good stuff. Um, <laughs> love it. Love it. I, I want to see it. I want to put it in my eye holes. Uh, yes. Christine, what you got? So mine is um, uh, more simple and I don't know, potentially um, controversial. Uh, <laughs> I would like to see Snake in Mad Max Fury Road instead of Tom Hardy. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, sure. That, that totally would be so much more interesting. <laughs> I haven't seen the movie, so I can't comment. But yeah, I mean, I, I feel I like mean, that's always a better upgrade. So good. Yeah, you know. I mean, it's not terrible. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it would be better with Snake Plissken. <laughs> right, right. It's like, yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of dialogue or anything anyway. Yeah, yeah. But as far as presence goes. I find that Tom Hardy cannot be compared to the presence of Kurt Russell. Of Kurt Russell. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, that's Especially a... Kurt Russell as Snake Plissken. Right, right. Yes, yes. You don't have to say a lot of things. Just exist. 
<clears throat> he's a visually awesome character. He really, it is so funny. Like what you can do with so little, if you pick the right things, like, you know, Derek said, he, he wears the like Arctic camo pants and just a black tank top. <laughs> and it's just, a, a lot of it is just uh, hair, eye patch, handsomeness. Done. <laughs> right. Done. One That's done. it. Done. Awesome. Uh, so I have uh, two answers. I have a fake answer and a real answer. And my real answer is actually kind of like Christine's. Like it's sort of it doesn't it doesn't cut across. It doesn't go across the genre like like uh, you guys had great picks for that. But uh, so I think it's more natural. But I'll, I'll go with my my fake answer first, which is of course he has to replace Samuel L. Jackson on Snakes on a Plane. Right. Oh, okay, that makes sense. No, 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 no. He then replaces the snakes. snakes. No, no, no. So it's Samuel Jackson with snake no, on a snake plane versus snakes. There's so many. It's one more snake for the plane. You gotta have the real snakes too. It's my it's my fake answer. Okay, I can fake answer. How it's I fine. Want. I'm just having Jack Burton in <laughs> Kindergarten Cop. I don't care. <laughs> I don't fine. care. I don't fine. even care. Whatever. I don't even care. Why, go then. Well, I am. I have no other so, couches to go behind. So right. my my real answer though <laughs> is uh, I want to see him uh, fight a predator so fucking bad. Oh, so yeah. <clears throat> okay, now I could say replace Arnold in Predator One or whatever, but honestly, no offense, Danny Glover, but mm, yeah, I'd you rather see go. him in Predator Two <laughs> because I think that Predator One is kind of perfect, and Predator Two could really actually use Snake. And it would be great. I, I mean, I know it doesn't make sense with him being a cop, but maybe this is before or something, but you know, maybe he was a cop at one time. I don't know, but I just, I really just want to see snake fight a predator. That would be fucking amazing. So that's my right. answer. Um, and now to get to the retroid answers, we got some fun ones. Derek Lofstrom says the thing um, where snake replaces McCready. So you're swapping a Russell for a Russell. Uh, but obviously very different Russell. He also suggested Kathy Bates in Misery, which might be my favorite answer of the entire list. <laughs> Chris, Ful- Chris Philbrook says, <laughs> have Snake replace Ryan Gosling in the notebook. Yes. Yes. Okay. okay. So sexy. Uh, Phil Conti, uh, Star Wars, The Phantom Menace, where Snake replaces Jar Jar Binks. Perhaps it would actually be a good character, he says. I would say it would definitely be a good character because it's Snake fucking Pliskin. So absolutely. Right. Um, and I guarantee you, Snake did not crash into Boss's head bleeper. And he was not dead. And he banished. was not dead managed. <laughs> uh, uh, Phil Conti also suggests uh, Kristen Stewart from the Twilight movies. Come on, Phil. Come on. Just keep it together, man. All right, uh, <clears throat> we got El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. Says replace Guy P. Got replace Guy Pierce in Lockout, which is, by the way, the film that got successfully sued for plagiarism by Carpenter. So we could have finally gotten the Escape from Earth film that Carpenter teased us with all back in the day, which uh, Derek Rook just mentioned. So kind of funny. So there is uh, there is that movie and thinking about it, it's like, wow, that's pretty funny. Yeah, it's it's pretty similar. Uh, great movie, Lockout, if you've never seen it. Um, Justin Cooper says replace Neo in The Matrix or Lewis Tully in Ghostbusters, which I actually prefer that one. 
Lewis Tully in Ghostbusters. It's Rick Moranis. I mean, yes. Right, right. That, right. all I'm saying is the terror dog chase is going different. A lot. <laughs> right. A lot of ways. <laughs> uh, George. Fun, fun Ghostbusters connection with They Live, actually. Right? Because there was a scene where they used the P- PKE meter. Oh, that's 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 right. That's right. I I noticed it this time too. Like because we just watched They Live Again, and uh, yeah, they're using. I think it looks like the same prop to me. That's crazy. No mm-hmm. I don't. I don't know if it truly is the same prop or if it's just similar. But I swear to God, they're just using the PKE meter later in the movie. Some of the aliens are using it. That is super fun. <clears throat> I don't remember what they were doing with it. Hey, aliens, what you doing with that thing? <laughs> George Brenham. I'm says, not, uh, go ahead. No, no. <laughs> okay. George Brenham says, replace Leon from the professional with Snake. I've still never seen that, that damn movie. With uh, I know it's Natalie Portman's first movie. And uh, I don't know. Never seen it. But uh, yeah, I'm sure it's awesome. Uh, because everything's better with Snake. Uh, ice cream, chocolate snake all those things are better with those things um so josh neela says let's go full circle and replace kermit the frog with snake in the muppet movie there you go yes (laughs) harry carvalho says 50 shades of snake anyone question mark or give die hard a whole new outlook with snake mclean snake (laughs) mclean there you go yippee motherfucker Ashes Von Nightmare is going to take us into the sunset. She says Snake Pliskin as Rhett Butler in Gone with the Wind. (laughs) Frankly, my dear, I don't give a fuck. I think that's how that went to go. (laughs) All right. So uh, part two of our meat and potatoes segment is actually can I can I add one more? Yes, I think it's. I think this would be hilarious. Please do replace John Malkovich in the movie, being John Malkovich <laughs> with Snake Plissken. It's all snakes. It's all snakes. <laughs> being Snake Plissken. <laughs> yes. Oh John man, Malkovich. it would be way darker in there. It would be way darker <laughs> and way better too. It would. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that's a good one. I like that one. Uh, thank you, Retroids, for for all those great answers. That was super fun, and uh, you know we always love when you guys get involved and. Uh, reading reading the answers on the show is fun for us. So I hope you guys enjoy it as well. Um, so I'm going to start off our second half of the evening. Uh, my personal pick, because there are so many and it's tough, and none of us picked Escape from New York, uh, which is not actually super easy because I think all of us actually really like that movie. So it was, mm-hmm. it was that's why I felt like getting Snake in the Octoponder was a, a great concession to that. Yeah, but, yeah. So. I'm going to pick a movie that um, I I have always liked, but it's another one that I like more and more every time I see it and uh, has become a very special movie. It's uh, it's it's Christine 1983. Um, so this is kind of like a fun deal in our house, because obviously my wife's name is Christine. Also, she loves classic cars. Also, she loves John Carpenter. Also, she loves Stephen King. So it sort of is like the perfect mega perfect storm, like pop 
culture thing. Um, and so we have a bunch of Christine things throughout the house. You know, we have little versions of the car and, you know, we have this old soundtrack and we have, you know, just stuff, poster and different things. Um, so this is, this is a movie I definitely think that, um, is not, not talked about on the same level as most of the ones we've been talking about so far. Um, it's, it's also a rare case of where I enjoy the movie more than the book. Um, it's not one of my favorite Stephen King books at all. Um, it's all right, but I, I really think that what they did in the movie, and this is kind of why I wanted to talk about it, um, to make me like it more is just one little tweak. It's just one thing that makes it all so different, which is in the movie, the car is evil. In the book, the car is possessed by its previous owner. So Hmm. when you talk about Christine and you say, Christine, she use she with a car. It's Christine, the character that really only holds up really truly with the tweak. Cause in the book, even though they will say Christine, 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 really Christine's just a shell. There is no Christine. It's really, the owner, Raleigh LeBay. So, mm, I don't know. I really like the tweak. I think it it it's streamlines it. It makes Christine her own self. And um, uh, I don't know. I, I didn't really give a shit about Raleigh LeBay. He was just a he was just a jerk who did shitty things and wasn't even that fucking evil. It's like I don't know. Like his his you know spirit is supposed to live on because he was such a piece of crap (laughs) and it's like but he wasn't like going murdering people left and right like i feel like dexter from dexter like his car should be more possessed than raleigh (laughs) lebay's i mean raleigh (laughs) lebay is just a jerk he's an inconvenient asshole but uh anyway um and he hates the shitters he hates all those shitters god does he hate the shitters they're all so, oh shitters. my god the freaking amount of times a word is used in the book but anyway so i i think uh i like that tweak a lot and i also uh like the way it allows you to feel like the car is actually jealous which is really right. cool it's yep fun that the car itself is jealous of all the people that keep getting uh in the way of her and her new owner whose name is escaping me. I should probably remember the Arnie. name. Arnie. Arnie. Right. Yes. Thank you. Uh, you know, so, I mean, I don't know. I think that's fun. Also the ending of the book is drawn out and Arnie survives the final confrontation and just kind of dies slowly on the vine. And it's just less interesting. I don't know. Like it would be fine if he got better, but if he's not going to get better, then it just felt like, why did he survive? I would just have him die in the final battle and go out in a blaze of glory but anyway um so i don't know i kind of prefer the ending of the the movie as well it's also got some really super neat practical effects uh you know not a ton of them but there is uh, a couple there are a couple of sequences where the car like heals itself because you know since it has a new owner that loves it it basically becomes this like psychic symbiote basically where they're feeding off each other uh in some way and the car is able to basically heal 
And so that's how it goes from being a real piece of crap to Sherry. And like, you know, nobody actually works on her. Really. They assume that Arnie's working on her. And really, he's just like doing nothing. Um, But well, he's doing something, but he's not like, you know, picking up a tool. Um, maybe he's picking up his tool. I don't know. He's, I don't know. He's, you know, if I don't know what he does in the front seat, I don't know. They don't, they don't really say, they don't really show you for sure. You see like some of the dash lights, but I don't know what his hands do. I don't know. I don't know. Gears. I don't know. Yeah. yeah there's definitely gear shift. There's, there's gear, gear shifting. I don't know. What he's doing. Uh, fiddling with the dials and the radio. I don't know. What he's doing. But, um, so anyway, uh, that's, that's, that's my pick. I think Christine is a, is a really great movie. And, um, that's all there is to it. What do, do you guys have uh, any thoughts on this particular movie? Um, I mean, we've never seen it, it, so I have yeah, never we, seen it. We watched it at your house not too long ago, um, me and Steph, and uh, and I mean, we definitely enjoyed it. Uh, I think that the you know the kind of progression throughout the movie to see you know Arnie kind of just getting more and more like de- decrepit and and taken over is really cool um and just like that progression through the whole thing is is neat and and yeah you know it's it's kind of just a simple story really it's just like yeah it's an evil car made that way that that's the deal there's not like a no explanation here and and that's fine you know um but yeah i i mean i i think it's a great movie and i think it's super cool that there's so many ties to uh both of your you know lives and stuff so that makes it fun and special and uh you have a, a pretty awesome christine model car as well which is really fun um it's not and, life-size right i mean it's just a model <laughs> it's, only it's, a model. it's only a model it's only a model <laughs> one one thousandth scale uh but still pretty dope uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's cool, and I, I like knowing the difference between the movie and the book. Um, probably not a book I'm going to seek out to read either way, but it's neat to know the difference and to see how they worked that same character who was so much bigger of a, a role in the book into the movie, but not making it about him. Mm. Like he was, he was there, but or his brother was there, but oh, Raleigh LeBay, yeah. So, yeah. so Christine, what what did you? What are your thoughts on the book versus movie thing? Um, I like them both. Um, uh, admittedly, as someone who has loved Stephen King books for many decades, his endings are not always great. Um, and I think that that, that holds true for, for Christine. But I, I really like, and it it's in the book and in the movie how Arnie, the more he becomes entranced by Christine, he goes from being this, you know, this kind of like early eighties teenager with broken glasses and acne to like a 1950s greaser. Right. (laughs) Out of, out of nowhere. I mean, not out of nowhere if you know the story, but um, and I think that's something that they kept that was that was really great, right? Um, to just show how much of an influence the car has uh, over over its owner. Uh, I think the movie is better than the book, but I don't dislike the book. Mm. 
I don't dislike the book either. I just didn't love it compared to some of his other ones. But yeah, no, I, I don't. I definitely don't dislike it. But it's interesting, you know, eight bit. You said <clears throat> you think it's cool the way it shows Arnie get more and more decrepit. But yeah, it's what Christine just said. And I was thinking that when you when you said that, first he gets cool. Like first he goes right. from this like right. terminal loser, total nerd that nobody you know he gets picked on all the time to he gets cool so at first it's like oh maybe it's okay it's a good thing and then he starts being a jerk and then he starts being a real jerk and then he starts to get kind of zombified a little bit you know is you know the dark circles under the eyes and he starts to you know wither away a little bit but um yeah you know you know another thing i will say that i find interesting in both versions are it's the same the two the two main friends so it's arnie and what's the other kid i think his name's dennis oh yeah dennis totally so arnie and dennis have a very unique dynamic in that they are best buds but dennis is a jock he plays on the football team he's super popular and arnie is absolutely like bottom of the social totem pole and gets picked on by absolutely everybody but dennis is such a good guy that they've been friends forever and just because he became popular and arnie didn't doesn't change anything between them personally like he never ever saw arnie as less than He's still his bud. He's st- they, he picks him up every day. They go to school. He's, ex- he's happy to see him when, you know, when Arnie starts to pull away and get involved with Christine and starts to be like, you know, essentially starts losing himself. Dennis really feels it bad. And you get the sensation, you, you get the sense, I should say, that Arnie doesn't really give a shit. He's pulling away, but he's moved on to bigger and better things. He's like kind of grown up. He's sort of grown you know, from Dennis into something better. And Dennis is just like lost his best friend. And so he's trying to get Arnie back, but Arnie's like, doesn't really want to be taken back. Like, he's like, I don't want to go back to that part of my life, you know, whatever. But it's almost like what you would expect Dennis would have done in high school. You know, that like, sorry, pal, like, but you're a total bummer. Like I, right. I, I, enough. yeah. So, I mean, there's just never that dynamic with, with friends, you know, it's always like the jocks are the jocks and the nerds are the nerds and that's it. And so I think it's a refreshing uh, couple of characters there that I think is it. And that's true. Like I said, for both versions. So that's Stephen King, but um, yeah, I don't know. Just uh, thought it was worth mentioning. Good stuff. Um, eight yes. bit. You got the final movie of the night. What you got my man. I do, I do. Uh, so this is a movie that is very new to me as far as John Carpenter goes, but um, I think it's it's a really awesome one. Uh, and so it's In the Mouth of Madness, yes. um, which is from 1995. Um, it was directed by John Carpenter and written by Michael DeLuca, who only wrote four movies to my knowledge. Um, the Lawnmower Man, uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, uh, in the Mouth of Madness and Judge Dredd. Pretty uh, all over the place um, yeah. writing credits. Uh, but this movie has such a kick-ass story and it is this 
amazingly confusing cyclical meta just you know incredible you know story and it's just told in a way that is that is perfect uh on film um and and, you know this movie's kind of main focus is is paying tribute to hp lovecraft and you know it kind of goes through uh, a lot of different you know common themes like you know just unknowable entities from you know beyond our dimension and just this you know slow slip into insanity and and stuff like that um but you know it it just it tells this really interesting story of of this guy john trent who is kind of like i don't i don't know exactly if he's like considered a lawyer but like he he basically like sniffs out people's cons and bullshit and like people kind of hire him uh you know he's like his own kind of you know free agent and and people hire him on as a consultant to kind of you know figure shit out and and sniff out bullcrap and uh and this this world is inhabited by a an author named Sutter Kane and do you read Sutter Kane? Do you read Sutter Kane? And uh and Sutter Kane is, you know, is this world's like Stephen King, uh, you know, HP Lovecraft, whatever. Like, you know, they they make references to it. It's like, oh, he's he's bigger than Stephen King. Stephen King, you know, can't uh, <laughs> right, right. The quote, whatever, but right. they 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 poop on Stephen King, you know, <laughs> in this one scene, and it's really funny. Uh, but yeah, it's like Sutter Kane is just this this fucking worldwide sensation. His books are translated into eighteen languages, and uh, it's it's unbelievable. Um, but the you know the the onset of the movie is kind of like uh, pe- people are going crazy or getting you know disturbed and and just like going ballistic. Yeah, homicidal reading, homicidal, and 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 it's all after reading um, Sutter Kane's like you know novels and stuff. He has like six or seven novels out, and a new one is like on the way. But the deal was that people started going crazy. There's some news reports going out. Uh, John Trent gets attacked by this guy who you find out was Sutter Kane's agent. And so the whole plot of the movie is uh, this, you know, this law firm that owns the rights to Sutter Kane's books and the movie rights and all that shit sends him or, or basically contacts him uh, because Sutter Kane has gone missing. And so the idea is that, you know, he's supposed to, 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 find out if you know where Sutter Kane has gone and, and all this other stuff and it's this this whole journey you know I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give away too too much of, of the plot um, as much as possible but it's this whole journey into just event after event that seem unbelievable and impossible but continue to prove themselves as true at least to the to the you know main character's perspective and um, it's fascinating i mean you have so many different aspects of the movie that are like you know parts of of sutter kane's books that like you you know the the, uh john trent is played by sam neill and uh and he is you know reading his books and you know kind of starts off as skeptical and he's like oh whatever you know people are calling this guy you know the new stephen king but they're also calling him like a prophet and all this other shit and you know it's like like this guy's got some kind of god complex because of the stuff that he writes uh and it's it's really such a a great story that you the viewer 
are going crazy along with the main character like everything that that he's learning along the way you're also like whoa what like um yeah this is happening and it's just it, it just is such a great does a great job of putting you in his shoes um and i think the uh you know it, it gets to a point where you you finally get to see uh the author you finally you know meet him and he's played by Jurgen Prock now and just has an amazing presence like i i love the way that he delivers his lines and is depicted and it's all very surreal um he was also but, in judge dread yeah there you go i mean you know why not be in both of both of michael de lucas yeah. movies yeah. <laughs> two two of four two of them two of four um and uh and, and I mean, th- this movie has some of it, it, it does not have John Carpenter's most elaborate um, like or, or 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 dispersed special effects. It's not like throughout the whole movie you're seeing like creepy, you know, weird shit here, there, whatever. But man, does it fucking have some of the best like focused effects like like the like, you know, not to, you know, blow anything up too early but the thing has effects that are incredible throughout the whole thing uh i feel like in the mouth of madness has some of the best effects but in like some key scenes i mean you have like the 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 woman at the hotel in the basement and like she's Mm -hmm. just like holy shit and uh and you have the 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 whole end sequence and the whole end sequence the whole chase is is just unreal so all of those all of the makeup effects in this one were done by greg nicotero who was you know his first big company was k&b which uh derek rook uh, mentioned and that's why i asked if he had worked on big trouble in little china because i knew he did this and it really is amazing because we we do have the the scream factory version of this particular movie and there are some really fun like bonus feature documentaries on it. And yeah, I got to watch those. Those were I mean, great. I mean, it's just so awesome. And you you don't realize just how many creatures that they made for this one movie that are like just barely in it. It's just mm-hmm. a few scenes, like you said, but you it sort of becomes like the Star Wars Cantina scene or something. Like you could pause it and be like, oh my God, like you can't even take in all of the freaking puppets and makeup effects and stuff because they just made a million for like just a couple scenes where they're you know it's supposed to be like a bunch of different just crazy creatures all at once yeah just like it serves the plot in that one moment but you're right it's it's very uh it's it's, they they withhold it they play them very close to the chest you know it it plays more throughout the movie on just like that sense of doubt and, and confusion. And, you know, it's like, it's playing on more of those like intellectual, you know, sane, insane, uh, you know, kind of level of fear. And then, and then you really get the, the, the the graphic gags towards the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it just hits both super well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, you know, give away everything. Right. It's but t- I, this I, one is it's, tough. It's a tough one to talk to about, talk about without, yeah. without ruining it. And I really just feel like, like I want everyone who hasn't seen it to watch it because it's just so damn cool. Yeah. Um, and is is done so goddamn well. Um, also, 
uh charlton heston is in it which is fun uh and oh and uh, he, he has like the greatest character name in the whole movie yes it was saperstein right oh no jackson harglow jackson yeah. harglow fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah yeah like oh my god i think i'm pregnant right now suddenly right? i'm just hearing that name <laughs> i have become pregnant i got the harglow in my cheeks <laughs> I got the honey glow in my cheeks. <laughs> Something that I really um, liked in this movie was um, when he realized the the book covers, yes. and he ripped all the book covers. Like, like that that is like the thought of um, you know what whoever it is in the world of creating covers when you're writing a novel to to say all right you know what we're gonna do we're gonna make a map Mm -hmm. but you're not gonna really know it and what's what's so cool about that scene is like i i was like i didn't quite understand how he knew what to cut out because i guess i just didn't get a good enough look like you know this needs to be said the book covers for for sutter kane's books are all super friggin legitimate yeah like they they had done graphic treatments for all of them and it just it's very very impressive they all are awesome and and look so great and i didn't know how he knew what to cut out and it's like if you know the story i'm like okay well i'm sure it would have just happened because it was meant to meant to happen but then it's like oh wait no there's actually like red red lines that are on it that he pieced together and i'm like oh okay that's awesome that's like that's so neat that he thought to do that yeah i had the same experience where where it's like you know i at first i didn't see them and i didn't know why he knew to cut them out but then later i had the same exact experience i'm like oh no there are these red lines he's just cutting along the red lines because the red lines make no sense Mm -hmm. they're you know in five different books whatever six different books and and they all have these weird red lines like well let's cut it all out and try to see if does it make anything and it's like oh it makes a map and oh it's definitely super neat right i love i love the book covers all oh, produced yeah. by uh, artist Nicotero said they did everything in the house. So incredible. Yep. And uh, yeah, the, 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 the movie poster, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say more than that, but the movie poster and the details on the movie poster, including the credits mm-hmm. on the bottom, it's like, Oh man, that's fucking awesome. Like, it's just, it all is there. And once you, once you've seen the movie, uh, I feel like it's one that sticks with you. Like it really does something I've never seen another movie do. And I mean, yeah, we we were glued to the screen watching it. So I, I feel like this is definitely like for me an unsung like crowning achievement in his in uh, mm. Carpenter's kind of directing pantheon because I just never hear anybody talk about it. it Apparently, never. it's yeah. uh, it's you know informally his third installment in what Carpenter calls his apocalypse trilogy, which was preceded by the thing and then Prince of darkness. And then this movie, I don't think, you know, it's much more than thematic, but maybe you could say, well, all this shit started going sideways. And and then these three movies, like the, 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 just the thread that ties them together is just, shit's going sideways like yeah i I think it's the world is the world is fucked at the end right so it's like okay you know whatever but it's like a you know kind of informal connection there um but the 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 last thing i have to say about this movie that blew my fucking mind (laughs) because i always have to talk about music 
so the movie starts out with this like ridiculously like butt rocking Metallica ass song. Like it just sounds like yeah, Enter it. Sandman, and it's yeah. fucking great. It's yep. really fucking cool. It does not fit this movie at all. <laughs> like the the soundtrack throughout the movie definitely fits it, but this like jam this metal theme is so awesome in a vacuum but it just makes no sense for this movie but so music is always done by john carpenter for the most part right but in this movie he was also he he had one other person that was working with him doing the soundtrack and the person who was helping him out no no steve it's not my man danny elfman i know you always think that's probably what i'm going to say because it always almost is but (laughs) The guy who helped him out is Jim Lang. Now, does anybody know who Jim Lang is? No. No. So Jim Lang also worked with John Carpenter on Body Bags. But he is most well known for doing the music. For being the alias of Hoyt Curtin. <laughs> Hoyt now mentioned seven times on the Retro Reductive Cephala podcast. Has nothing to do with anything, but I worked him in anyway. Please continue. Fuck yeah, Hoyt Curtin. So the guy who helped him out, Jim Lang, was responsible for eight years for doing all of the music for Hey Arnold. Oh my god. Oh my god. I love Joe's. Oh my god! And it, there. it just it just all comes back around. <laughs> oh it really, god. it's just it's Jesus it's Christ. just it's a cycle. It's just so meta, dude. Only you could uncover that. That's amazing. I that is, fucking that is... called it in the credits. Yeah. We were watching the intro, and it was like music by John Carpenter and Jim Lang, and I'm like, shut the fuck up, Jim Lang. Not the same Jim Lang. And then oh, I googled yes, it. I'm like, very... I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm like, it's the it's the hey Arnold guy, and and Steph was literally like, what, like the jazz guy? And I'm like, yeah, the fucking jazz guy. And I'm like, this this theme song is just straight out metal, and the rest of the movie yeah. is like not jazz. And I'm like, oh, okay, I mean, hey man, that's fucking oh. cool. If oh, you look God. up Jim Lang on Wikipedia, his little blurb is just like he did a Hey Arnold, and then Hey Arnold the movie, and then Hey Arnold the Jungle movie. Nobody fucking mentions that he also <laughs> worked on John Carpenter's Body Bags and In the Mouth of Madness. So uh, yeah, that that was my holy shit fun fact. For that this. is a that is a holy shit great fun fact, my man. Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty good shit. But anyway, shit. that's uh that's it. If anyone else has anything to throw in, uh, Joe, if you haven't seen this movie, I really would like you to see it. It's fucking cool. I'll have to see it. Sure. Yeah. You can you can borrow it if you want if it's not <clears throat> anywhere re- readily available. Uh, it is a, it is a great one. I am really happy you picked it, honestly, uh, because I really wanted to do Christine, but I was secretly kind of like wanting to do In the Mouth of Madness too, and I was kind of like so torn. And uh, so I'm I'm really happy that you yeah. you chose this one. I I love this one. Um, yeah. So do you guys, uh, Christine, anything else on this one? I just want to mention a couple of fun things that I learned recently uh, because they apply uh, mostly to you and your love of things in life. Um, John Carpenter, uh, in talking about his very limited music ability and giving so much praise to his son and his godson that he works with, 
uh, he's, he said the most influential score in his life was Forbidden Planet. No way. Yeah. He, he said it is just, it's all electronic, which is uh, Carpenter's roots. Uh, he, he does not, you know, he's not fluent on any um, instruments or anything. Uh, and the other is he that just stays his, home and plays synthesizers. <laughs> he does. He just plays with the synthesizers. Um, his favorite composer is James Bernard, who composed the music for the Hammer films. Wow. Nice. And, and he said he, he just really loved the, the atmosphere that he created in, it, in its simplicity that you knew all of a sudden something bad was going to happen. Yeah. But you just didn't know what. That's um, super interesting. And I just thought that was really fun. Yeah. That he, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, for those who don't know the movie Forbidden Planet or don't remember the soundtrack, there is no soundtrack. It's so interesting that that's what he said, because there's no music at all. It's just space sounds. It's mm-hmm. just echoey bleeps and bloops. Um, pretty much the entire movie to the point where it, it does hurt the enjoyment of the film for me. It starts to get just like like it feels like a drill in my head after a while. It's like, oh my God, it never stops. It's kind of the opposite of what I was saying with the uh, Halloween theme where they, you know, they didn't overdo it. And then, you know, Derek said they, they use it a ton, like way too much in the second one. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Interesting that that's, that's his favorite, his most influential soundtrack. huh? Wow. It probably was him listening to it and going, holy fuck, that's simple. I could do that. I could do this. <laughs> Even I could bust this out. Even I, with my knowledge of five keys, I could do it. <laughs> awesome. So his, uh, John Carpenter's dad was a music professor. Hmm. And he's often talked about how unbelievably talented his son is, which Cody, which he works a lot of it, with all of his recent things. Um, and is the other big person that uh, he works with is his godson, Dan Davies, who is the son of uh, a member of the Kinks. Oh, oh, so no. I just it, it's just so fun, right? Like you've got John Carpenter, who has you know musical ties in his life. His dad is a is a music professor, mm-hmm. but he personally doesn't. Uh, master anything and then he works with his son who has mastered all of the mm-hmm. instruments and then Dan Davies who who comes from I mean his dad's in the kinks right right it's like this is so interesting what a, what a great collaboration to have yeah really yeah, yeah those yeah. lost those lost themes albums are really awesome they really are <laughs> they're really so fun. good they're really really fun I enjoy them. They are perfect. It's so funny. You said like, you know, it's, it's the, uh, the litmus test for new friends we put it on. And uh, <laughs> will they come back if we just play uh, scary, scary sounds records from the fifties? Uh, we don't know, but uh, if they do, then they're cool. <laughs> right. right. Use a keeper. 
<laughs> so, uh, all right, we have one more entry, and uh, this is the voicemail that I mentioned earlier, and we're almost done. We'll uh, we'll get to that right right now. Thank you, everybody, for um, your awesome picks and for being a part of the episode. Um, that was really really fun. Um, for our last review of the evening, we actually have a voicemail from Ian Davidson, aka. El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast. And if you aren't familiar with the show, the big guy with four arms, just kidding, he only has the two, has been doing his thing for almost 600 episodes. I was expecting years, and I'm like, damn. He's not that old. (laughs) Talk Without Rhythm is all about breaking down movies, cartoons, and even anime, old and new where we here on Retro Adoctobus generally just uh, like to spotlight and give our opinions on things. El Goro is much more of a film historian who actually knows what the fuck he's talking about on like levels that you can't even believe the stuff like kind of like what Derek was doing. He's like similar to that. He also happens to be a huge Carpenter fan. And between you, me and these interwebs, I'm pretty sure he could actually bench press a 58 Plymouth Fury. Anyway, Without further ado, here is El Goro. Hey folks, this is El Goro from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, taking a break from my annual insanity that is 31 Days of Halloween to speak upon one of my favorite films of all time. I speak, of course, of 1982's The Thing, directed by the great John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster, originally based on the novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, though drawing more than a little inspiration from the 1951 adaptation of the novella The Thing from Another World, ostensibly directed by Christian Nyby, but with more than a little artistic inspiration provided by Howard Hawks. The thing, of course, tells the story of the inhabitants of Outpost 31, an Antarctic research facility consisting of Kurt Russell as helicopter pilot R.J. McCready, as well as a whole host of individuals working at the outpost, including but not limited to Wilfred Brimley, T.K. Carter, David Clennon, Keith David, Richard Dysart, Charles Hallahan, Peter Maloney, Richard Masur, Donald Moffat, Joel Paulus, and Thomas Waits. Well, I guess that is the entire cast. I suppose there's some Norwegians that show up briefly, but uh, they don't last very long. And of course, there's something else in the camp. You see, there is an alien presence stalking the halls of Outpost 31. A thing from another world that was uncovered by a group of Norwegians and unleashed unknowingly upon the Americans at Outpost 31. Unknowingly because this thing could look like anyone. It has the ability to absorb and perfectly replicate anything it has the ability to come in contact with, and you cannot find out who it is. And so the film unfolds with this great guessing game. Can you trust the person next to you, or are they the thing? And that, of course, is the very basic synopsis of a film that was, of course, pilloried at the time that it was released. Released with very little fanfare, very little box office, and in many, in many cases, uh, a lot 
a lot of negative response, it has nevertheless gone on to be considered to be an absolute classic. Not only within the expansive filmography of John Carpenter, he himself no slouch when it comes to the genre classic territory, but also a classic within the broader genre of both horror and science fiction, as well as that beautiful marriage between the two. In fact, I would go so far as to say the thing is the absolute pinnacle of science fiction horror, unless one counts the alien films, in which I do. But the thing is really close afterwards. It's really, really close afterwards. A certain amount of credit must be given to Carpenter's incredibly uh, solid direction, as well as the amazing cinematography from uh, frequent Carpenter collaborator Dean Cundey. The amazing score from uh, Ennio Morricone, one of the few people, outside people, that have stepped in to uh, score John Carpenter's films. He usually likes to provide his own soundtrack, but if you're going to step aside, you may as well step aside for Morricone. And of course, the amazing assembled cast that I laid out to them. All of these people never really... written beyond the strictly archetypical level, but still expressing themselves with such amazingly assured performance and such interesting character that this really does sell the isolation, the paranoia of these men as they are stalked by this amazing, amazing monster brought to the scream due to the incredible talents of the absolutely superlative Rob Bottin. The thing is like nothing you have ever seen before. And it definitely stands as one of the finest examples of practical spectacles special effects in the history of cinema. This is the high watermark in terms of practical uh, creature effects, and its impact remains absolutely to this day. If you have never seen The Thing, you are certainly doing yourself a disservice. Again, it did not find its audience at the time of its release, but now it is rightfully regarded at in the very top of not only Carpenter's career, but of the genre of horror and science fiction horror, in my oh-so-humble opinion. So that, watch the thing. This is Elgor from the Talk Without Rhythm podcast saying, adios. All right, thanks Elgoro for that awesome voicemail. We, uh, we really appreciate it. We were hoping to have him on the show tonight as well. And uh, he was just so busy with his 31 days and nights of Halloween that he... Uh, you know, he at least carved out the, the five minutes to record that. And, you know, I just appreciate it so freaking much. That was so great to have him uh, be part of this episode. I know he's a huge fan and I know he also happens to be uh, he's actually uh, I guess he's in one of the commentaries for the Arrow release of the thing uh, in England. I don't know how he that happened. There's there's got to be a story there. Nice. but I know he's actually on the commentary for it, um, but he's just a big, big thing fan and a big movie fan. And if you have never heard or listened to the Talk Without Rhythm podcast, I recommend you check it out. If you're a movie fan, uh, nobody knows their shit more than the big guy. So uh, so definitely do that. And guys, uh, you know, we, we've been we've been talking about Carpenter for so long, but the thing it's it's such a big one uh had to save it for last obviously you know i I mean a big a big sci-fi movie for a lot of people uh definitely one of my favorite sci-fi horror movies as he said it's so funny when i first heard him say that and i'm like 
and he said the, the best i'm like what alien and then, and then he goes unless you count alien which i do oh crap okay well this is pretty good <laughs> <laughs> so funny i'm like okay well it's not better than alien but it's really good yeah. um but the uh, the makeup effects by uh, Rob Botine, who also has, I mean, that, that guy has worked on just a lot of stuff. Uh, you know, RoboCop, lots of awesome stuff in RoboCop. You know, the Melty guy. There's the like toxic waste thug. Uh, right. Tons of stuff in Total Recall. Total Recall is just a wealth of awesome freaking makeup effects. Uh, he also worked on Seven and um, apparently Legend, 80s movie Legend, uh, Explorers. Which was that uh, that River Phoenix Ethan Hawke movie with aliens from the eighties? So he did like a lot of big characters, you know, for makeup suits and that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean, the the, the makeup effects in the thing are often cited when I talk to people about this sort of thing or read about it online. It's always tops in people's lists of the greatest special effects of all time, the greatest practical special effects of all time. Yeah, and that is uh, that is Rob Botine. Uh, it's funny his last name just looks like Botten. Hey, hey, Botten, hey, Mr. Botten, Mr. Botten. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you guys have anything to say about this amazing movie, The Thing? Um, only it's- everything. I mean, this would have been my pick, but you know, I definitely didn't want to choose it if uh, if El Goro was going for it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that this is just it's. It's one of my favorite movies ever. It's probably my favorite like horror movie, um, like horror sci-fi suspense movie. Period. I feel like it's just it it just captures everything that I I feel like is enticing and gripping. And you have this super high stakes scenario. You have all these characters all suspecting each other. Um, the effects just being as incredibly convincing as they are and uh, you know the the setting being so dire and and just having no way out and being stuck here i mean it's just fucking terrifying but it's also so goddamn cool and it's it's really it's a movie that i could watch a lot of times it's a it's a really great movie i i just adore it and i hadn't seen it for the longest time uh we had the dvd forever i never really knew what the heck it was uh and then i don't know one one day probably 10 15 years ago i watched it and was blown away i had no idea what to expect with the the dvd cover was just kind of like the the screaming face not really looking like anything much uh just you know okay it's it's just like a yeah it wasn't the original face right right. it was not the eskimo man with the glowing face it was just like a it looks frosty and there's a guy screaming and it's like it just looked like nothing and then watching the movie i'm like holy shit was i not prepared (laughs) for anything in this fucking movie by that cover uh damn am i glad i did not judge the book by the cover um yeah i i really like this movie super glad that he chose it um yeah it it's fantastic i didn't know that the music was done by Ineo morricone that is super cool yeah um you know he's super famous for obviously uh fistful of dollars and uh good bad and the ugly and and a, a lot of those western movies really oh cool i actually didn't recognize the name at all uh so he, yeah he he did the uh the like that that <laughs> song is his yep. 
no, it's his baby. Wow. Uh, pretty crazy. But nice. uh, when I was, yeah. I was just, you know, over the past couple of weeks, just reading and watching various uh, Carpenter interviews and stuff. Um, there was some music from this that um, Morricone or Morricone? I think it's Morricone because he's Italian, but I don't know. Okay. That that Morricone had made that um, uh, Tarantino ended up asking if he could use it in The Hateful Eight uh, because he thought it was great and it, it never made it to the release of the thing and he wanted to, you know, put it out there. Oh, so it was huh. unused music. Yeah, it was, oh. it was unused music. Neat. Um, that he ended up putting in the Hateful Eight. That was made Neat. for the thing? It was made for the thing, yeah. Wow. wow. That is that's yeah. super cool. I That's wicked interesting. Huh. Uh, also, I read that this this soundtrack was nominated for a Razzie. Really? I mean, the, 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 the awards the were terrible? Yes, the movie did not do well. No. Uh, like many of John Carpenter's movies, right? Like they didn't yeah. they didn't do well. They became lived later. Right. And this was one of those. So the thought of like now with how much we all love this movie because it's such a great movie to think that its score was nominated for the worst yeah. of the year. Whatever. Right. Is just here in Neo Morricone, just... have a Razzie. Like, okay. <laughs> let's take him down a peg. He's just too good. That's a random. <laughs> I, I've never. <laughs> I don't know. That That's wild. Bang. Right. Have you ever seen this one, Joe? Yep. I think I've seen it at your place. Oh, yeah. That's right. We did a thing night. We did. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because they, they, they had released uh, the prequel. Yes, and we watched both, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very good movies. I like them both. Cool, is this cool. the first appearance of Kurt Russell's amazing ability to grow a beard? Oh, I don't know. It could be. I mean, I mean this is from 1980. What? Two, three, two. Four. Yeah, 82. So, I mean, yeah, 82. I mean, yeah, he was just clean shaven, man, for all, like all his teenage years was doing all the dumbass you know world's strongest man Mm. disney movie stuff Um, i mean when you think of him in in general like he's a clean shaven or maybe like a five o'clock shadow guy but it turns out he can grow a beard like no other uh well yeah and his his mustache is just oh my god he has the best mustache yeah, forget about five. Well, Sam, well, I I don't know. Sam Elliott might have the best mustache, but his is Oh, I gotta agree with you there. But I mean, then again, I don't know, like Tombstone, I thought that's the best Kurt Russell mustache that'll ever be. And then the Hateful Eight came out, and it's like it's like White Earp's mustache on steroids. Like, what happened? How is there that much <laughs> hair coming out of your face, dude? Like, is it real? Is it not real? I don't know. I mean, I know it's we looked it up. We looked it up. And his Santa beard is mostly his hair, but not all. It's yeah. not completely. Right. We're like, come oh. on. Is it really all Kurt Russell? Because 
He's like, I really, I have to shave my face at least twice a week, and uh, otherwise this happens. I just, I just <laughs> turn like it Wolverine. to <laughs> Literally just Wolverine. Like every right. two hours, I have to shave. Oh my god! Yeah, I but... blink and I gotta shave. That's a that man can grow a freaking facial hair. That's He's got a five o'clock forest. That's what we're <laughs> oh man, awesome! All right, guys. Well, hey, you know, I hope everybody out there enjoy this episode this was super fun to make it was awesome having uh having our guests thank you to derek rook for coming by and thank you so much christine for being a part of the show finally after almost three entire seasons we found a great topic for you to come on for and uh we definitely hope you come back we'll we'll find something something else to jibber jab about fun shit to talk about Right? Yeah, this is really fun. We haven't done a Mario episode, so I mean, you know. We haven't done a Sebastian Bach episode. Oh, that's true. I mean, both of those things have my name all over it. All over it. (laughs) Uh, Not to brag, but I kind of have a super cool life. So anyway, not to brag, but brag. You know, just Uh, turn up the TV. (laughs) I got no place to go. Um, to, yeah, <clears throat> anyway, uh, yeah, so it is. Uh, I'm looking at I'm looking at the clock here, and you know what? It, it, uh, it's telling me it's almost time to cast that horizon. But before we say goodbye, let's go to this. You got your spiked gauntlets, you got your bullet belt, you got your leather jacket and your denim, you got your hairspray. Well, put them on because it's time for another edition of. Power to the What's up, everyone? This is Nintendo, and on this segment of Power to the Metal, I want to do something a little different. Uh, I want to kind of like uh, celebrate a uh, this particular album, uh, which just celebrated its 40th anniversary, which is absolutely crazy to me. On November 4th, 1981, Black Sabbath's Mob Rules album came out. And unfortunately, it was the last album to feature Ronnie James Dio um, in the 80s era. And uh, I have to say, it's it's a good album. Not, as, not quite as good as Heaven and Hell, but uh, I think it's pretty damn good. Mm-hmm. Pretty damn good. The, the album was uh, uh, mixed and mastered by Martin Birch, who also did uh, a lot of the Iron Maiden albums from the 80s. And I believe into the 90s as well i could be wrong on that um anyways the songs on this album are turn up the night voodoo the sign of the southern cross which is a staple on the album so so good so good e5150 which is an instrumental the mob rules country girl slipping away falling off the edge of the world and over and over so it's nine tracks all together and there is a 2010 deluxe edition where they just pretty much just added like um like live tracks and all that fun stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it's awesome. Uh, Ronnie James Dio knows saying like he always did, and you no, know, it's just perfect. He was just so perfect on every album that he ever sang on. Uh, the writing is superb, but not as superb as Heaven and Hell. Um, my favorite track on the album besides Sign of the Southern, Southern Cross has to be the first track, which is Turn Up the Nights. I always thought that song was very, very mm-hmm. catchy, very upbeat. I think it's a, a really good intro to the album. It's a great opener. Yeah. And of course, you know, the title track, The Mob Rules. It's mm-hmm. just oh yeah. A, a classic. So freaking good. 
I mean that 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 riff, the main riff in Mob Rules is just incredibly like just you oh, can't yeah. deny that riff. So yeah. good. It's so good. <clears throat> so good. And uh the, one of the things that uh that's pretty unfortunate with this album is that a lot of people criticize the band for making a Heaven and Hell Part 2, which I don't quite understand. No. Um cuz I think they both sound completely different. Mm. Um even uh songwriting wise it was just different um but yeah the mob rules 40th anniversary the last album with uh ronnie james dio from the 80s until his return in uh early 90s with uh dehumanizer which is also a fantastic album Mm -hmm. hell to the yeah hell to the yeah let's see yeah black sabbath mob rules 40 years old holy shirt that is fucking unreal (laughs) oh man 40 so that means the first black sabbath album came out in 71 71 or 70 70 okay 70 1970 so they released two albums in 1970 you have uh i think it was was it self-titled i don't remember if it was yeah. self-titled yeah it was self-titled and then the second album was paranoid i don't remember the aussie years like what what the order was but the first one was self-titled for sure yeah for sure yeah yeah so that means that heavy metal has been around for at least half a century yeah which is nuts it is nuts absolutely nuts Fifty years, bro. Fifty <laughs> years. I, I, um, I agree with everything you said. Um, I mean, I, I, I really like this album. Uh, it's not the masterpiece that Heaven and Hell is, but I say, anytime somebody compares something to something else and and says, but it's not as good as that, it's like, okay, but that's the best. So, right? Are you telling me you you will only accept things that are tens? Like I don't understand. Right, like, right. Like what the right. fuck? The bar like, is just too high. Like, like don't look below the bar. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. Well, fuck you. The world I'm is too tall. For the, the world bar. is pretty minimalist then, because there's a lot of fucking gray in here. Uh, Crazy anyway, gray color. I, I think it's a, I think it's a really really good album. I like it a lot. And yes. I, you know. Uh, yeah. Obviously, as big Dio fans, we're all, you know we're all fans of this album. Right. Um, but nice sweet yes. man sweet yeah. so um uh that said we'll just we'll just do a quick prom uh i know nintendo yeah. you had something you wanted to just get out yeah, real just, quick, right yeah just real quick um on my youtube channel which is nintendo 25 um i've decided to just concentrate mostly on streaming for now and uh which i'll be doing every wednesday nights at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and I'll be playing uh, either video games or just hanging out, whatever I feel like doing that night. And I just hope people show up. Uh, the last few streams have been really fun. Um, I streamed a game for the first time on YouTube last week, and that the turnout was fantastic, and I was really surprised. Um, yeah, so I hope you guys show up, and uh, I'll be making posts on our face, uh, yeah, our Facebook page about that and i also have i now have i now have a community tab on youtube so that means i'm huge by the way um 
because oh, you know, I'm, I'm over 500 subscribers so you're like miles o'keefe <laughs> I'm, I'm, fa- I'm famous now okay over 500 <laughs> <laughs> right so yeah hope you guys stop by and check it out it's a lot of fun yeah, yeah do it do it do it guys it's good times and uh you know nintendo is always fun to hang out with i know i've been doing it for a lot of years decades in decades. fact uh fact. but hey you know uh, not 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 black sabbath decades but not not quite as many decades <laughs> not, good, not, not that many decades no <laughs> but uh all right i uh i think that pretty much wraps up the episode i hope you guys had fun i know we did and if you haven't jumped ship by now we certainly hope you've enjoyed this week's journey over the treacherous waters of all the things that made growing up awesome if you like what you've heard please hit that little subscribe button and like us on facebook and twitter as well as being members of the Inebriart Podcast Network, Retro Doctopus is also a full-fledged member of the Dorkening Podcast Network, brought to you tonight by Deadly Grounds Coffee, B- BT Dubs. So if you get a chance, please check out our sister shows like The Wicked Horror Show, Throw It On Thursday, That Strange Show, Super Retro, Throwback Reviews, I don't know, there's like a ton of them, Shark Bites, and Geek Life HQ with our Bud, Justin Cooper, all sorts of good stuff over there at the Dorkening. They're just growing by leaps and bounds all the time. And uh, yeah, you should uh, check some of those shows out. I have been your host. My name is Parasite Steve. And I want you to consume, stay asleep, and obey. <laughs>